Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. When you're in San Francisco, it's easy to overlook Richmond. It's across the water, across a long bridge in the East Bay. It's known as being scrappy, transitional. Your chance of becoming a victim of violent crime there is twice as high as in California as a whole. But Richmond's kind of charming, really. And it has a story to tell. Early in the American century, it helped change the course of a war abroad and of American society at home. And in this episode, one extraordinary woman who is part of that story and is nearing a century herself will help tell that tale. This is Whose Century Is It? I'm Mary Kay Magstad. So this podcast is about ideas, trends, and twists shaping the 21st century, which generally means casting forward. But sometimes it's worth looking back, because some of the ideas, trends, and twists helping to shape this century are on a long arc that started decades ago. So cast back to the early 40s. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. The Nazis are on the march. This is what we are fighting. Freedom's oldest enemy. The passion of the few to rule the many. This isn't just a war. It's us or them. 170 years of freedom decrees our answer. Before a gun can fire... A tank can roll, a ship can float. Thousands upon thousands of men and women must work to get them ready. American armies are on the march, and forward with them. The unsung millions of soldiers without guns march on to final victory. Richmond Shipyards, owned by Henry Kaiser, took a cue from the mass production techniques at the neighboring Ford Auto Plant and started churning out ships, more than 740 of them by war's end. And with so many men off fighting, women were encouraged to step up. 
it was the era of Rosie the Riveter. So, okay, the tone was a little patronizing. Social norms don't change overnight. And indeed, after the war, men took the jobs back from women, and the women were expected to go back to being housewives, as many did in the 1950s, before the women's movement erupted. But social change did come from this moment in American history. All these voices and the music that you're hearing are from a museum in Richmond that's worth visiting because it tells the story of that change. It's the Rosie the Riveter Museum, and it's just near the old Ford plant on the water's edge. It has displays, films, a model riveting machine, and talks. And one talk in particular regularly fills the room. A petite older woman in a brown park ranger uniform pulls up a stool, sits with perfect posture, and begins. Can we have a light I like to see faces. This is Betty Reed Soskin, the nation's oldest park ranger. She's 94. Back in the days of Rosie the Riveter, she was here in Richmond as a 20-year-old clerk. She starts her presentation with a film that tells the mainstream story about how the war effort changed women's lives. It includes reflections from former workers here. I was very proud of myself that I worked in the shipyards. Proud of myself because I thought we were doing something for the war effort. From that point on, I always thought I can do anything I want to do. If I set my mind to it, I can do anything. And that's how I've lived the rest of my life. This was the place to be. What sticks with me the most was how wonderful everybody was to each other. Very patriotic and pulling together, and it was just a good time. That's what makes the story so interesting, that these were ordinary people who did extraordinary things. As the credits roll, Betty, who's African-American, a Cajun Creole from New Orleans whose parents moved to Oakland when she was six, says she didn't much like this film when she first saw it because Rosie the Riveter was a white woman's story. My disappointment came from the fact that that history had been contracted and that because when you give up your complexity, you give up much of your truth. If you're going to try to tell a story with as many moving parts as this story had in 15 minutes, what do you do? You go for the Hollywood ending. You know, we all got together for the sake of democracy, and we set our differences aside, and we built the ships, and we won the war. That tends to be the way history gets recorded. If you were African-American, she says, it was all a little more complicated than that. And if you knew the sequence in which people were hired... First, to be hired with the men who were too old to fight. Second, the boys who were too young to be drafted. Third, single white women. And that pool's exhausted, married white women. And not until 1943, the first of black men to be hired as helpers and trainees only to do the heavy lifting for the women that they brought on board. And though there were some black women who worked as laborers, sleeping in the decks while other people worked, 
It wasn't until late in 1944 and early in 1945 that black women began to be trained as welders. And if you know that sequence, you know that those pictures on our wall upstairs or in this room with all these people standing together and brothers and sisters, all shapes, all sizes, all colors, all races, all nationalities, all genders, everybody standing together as brothers and sisters. And we see that because we come from a more enlightened age. We see that as the brotherhood, the fellowship of World War II, and we wonder why we can't do that now. What we don't recognize is that that picture has to date from late in 1944 or early in 1945, because in 1942 you couldn't have gotten to stand together and had their pictures taken. But that gives you an actual sense of the acceleration of social change, which was initiated during those years here in the Bay Area. The change started with shipyard owner Henry Kaiser recruiting African Americans in the South to come and work in Richmond. He knew all he needed was enough hands. He didn't care what color they were, and he didn't care who they were connected to. He just needed enough hands. And he knew where the greatest pool of available existed in the country, the five southern states of Mississippi, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana, which is where he did his major recruiting. Whites coming off the dust bowl, blacks coming off the mechanization of cotton, everybody rising from the Great Depression, sharecroppers ready to drop their hose in the fields and come out and be shipbuilders with Mr. Kaiser. It's possible for a black man to be standing on the sidewalk in Jackson, Mississippi, where Southern tradition would demand that he step off into the gutter if a white person approached. That man could find himself tapped on the shoulder by a Kaiser recruiter, and two weeks later be in the city of Richmond, riding in the front of the bus, ten years before Rosa Parks would refuse to give up her seat in Montgomery, Alabama. You've got black people coming out here as migrant workers with hope and expectations for a better life to be met by white people coming out here, Southerners, expecting a continuation of white privilege and into a city with a population of 23,000, into that small city, Henry Kaiser would bring in a workforce of 98,000 black and white Southerners who are not going to be sharing drinking fountains, schools, housing, any kind of public accommodations for another 20 years back in their places of origin. That's not going to happen until the 60s. We are talking 1942. And no time for focus groups or diversity training. They had got to negotiate every day, every day as it comes, at the personal level. No time to take on a broken social system. Only time to take on the mission of their leader, which is simply pure and simple. Build ships faster than the enemy could sink them. That's all. And behind a man who, who referred to the bow of the ship as a pointy end. <laughs> Seriously, the pointy end. 
They completed 747 ships in three years and eight months. Yes. 747 ships. A feat that's never been matched, nor will it be. They worked around the clock, 24 hours a day, three ships, 364 days, only with Christmas off. By way of comparison, Mr. Moore at Moore Dry Dock in Oakland, who was a traditional shipbuilder who'd been building ships since the First World War, completed 100. Bechtel Corporation at Sausalito Marine Ship completed 93. And Henry Kaiser and his merry band of sharecroppers completed <laughs> 747 ships, and by outproducing the enemy right here, helped to turn the course of the war around and end it. Right here. It's a pretty incredible story, but so is Betty's own. As a young woman, she knew her great-grandmother, who'd been born into slavery in 1846 in St. James Parish, Louisiana. She was a slave until age 19, when she was freed by the Emancipation Proclamation. She lived to be 102. That means that I was a full-grown woman, a mother by that time, 27 years old when my slave ancestor died. I knew her as a matriarch of my family. And on January 20th of 2009, I'm a seated guest on the Capitol Mall with a picture of my great-grandmother in my breast pocket, witnessing the inauguration of America's first African-American president. In the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial, whose life was contemporary with the life of my great-grandmother. That's how fast the time goes. Betty was also invited to introduce President Obama at this past year's White House Christmas tree lighting ceremony. It is fitting that I've returned to Washington tonight with my granddaughters in an area known as the Ellipse, because this is a full circle moment. She says it was the thrill of a lifetime, and she still sleeps with the presidential seal he gave her beneath her pillow. If it occurred to me some months ago, when I sat up in bed one night, wide awake, I don't know what I was dreaming, it occurred to me that if I could make a template of that timeline from 1846 and my great-grandmother's birth to my still being here, but if I moved it ahead 100 years so that it starts not in 1846 but 1946, what looms into view is the fact that those of us in this room, by what we do or fail to do over the next few years, may well determine whether or not our grandchildren inherit a livable planet, because that's how fast the time goes. In her own time, Betty has moved from being a 20-year-old clerk in a Jim Crow union hall to a wife and mother whose family got death threats for buying a home in a white suburb. They live there anyway. To successful co-owner of a music shop, to legislative staff for local city council members, to, around age 80, becoming a park ranger and making sure the African-American experience was part of the story being told at the Rosie the Riveter Museum. Because the nature of democracy is it will never stay fixed. That wasn't what it was created to do. It's a dynamic system. It is not static. It is dynamic. Every generation has to recreate democracy in its day. Every generation. 
It won't stay fixed because we have a constitutionally protected right to be wrong. <laughs> we have a constitutionally protected right to be bigots. the phrase out of sight, out of mind. Albert Woodfox has spent more time out of sight, locked away in solitary confinement than any man alive in the U.S. today, 43 years. Advocates have tried to keep him on our minds by giving a name to the plight of Mr. Woodfox, along with friend Robert King and a third inmate, Herman Wallace. The three of them became known around the world as the Angola Three, since they were kept in solitary confinement at the Louisiana State Prison, known as Angola, for decades. Mr. Wallace and Mr. Woodfox were accused in the death of a young prison guard at Angola, but no forensic evidence tied them to the crime, and they always maintained their innocence. Advocacy groups like Amnesty International say the Angola Three were targeted because of their work with the Black Panthers protesting prison conditions. Mr. Wallace died in 2013, just days after a judge ordered him released from solitary confinement. Mr. King was released in 2001 after a court reversed his conviction. He's dedicated his life to fighting to bring attention to prison abuses, as well as for the freedom for his friends. Mr. Woodfox was freed just last month after pleading no contest to lesser charges. I spoke with Albert Woodfox and Robert King from New Orleans, and I want to warn you that there is a word used in the conversation that some may find offensive. And I started by asking Mr. Woodfox what kept him going all those years. I would imagine the qualities that, as a human being that I inherited from my mother, such as strength, determination, and uh, I think having Robert King and Herman Wallace as not only my comrades, but best friends, made it possible for me to endure a great deal. Mr. King, what about you? You were released in 2001 after you had been in solitary for nearly 30 years. Can you talk a little bit about your experience? How did you keep going? Well, I was motivated also by Herman and Albert and, you know, other people who I came in contact with, despite the fact that we were, you know, in, quote, you know, solitary confinement. And now they haven't ruled that solitary confinement per se is cruel and unusual punishment. But they did say that at the time that one is held in solitary confinement, such as in my case, which I only was there for 29 years, a federal judge ruled that it constituted a cruel and unusual punishment. Um, it was so, sort of barbarous. But I couldn't help but notice when you said I was only in solitary for 29 years. I, I still, <laughs> I, I mean, that uh, that is more than many people could handle. Um, do you remember when you first were put in solitary? Did anybody tell you why? Do you remember what you thought? Well, no. I th- I, th- I thought this was because you know, prior to my being sent to Angola. We managed to try to effect some changes in the New Orleans Paris prison where I was housed at. Um, I was labeled at that time as a troublemaker. Oh, is that right? I mean, did they say that to you? You're a troublemaker, that's uh, why? I was told this by a warden. Hmm. What about you, Mr. Woodfox? What did they say to you about why you were going? Well, they lined everybody up on the, uh, the walkway, and we proceeded forward to what was called the uh, clothing rooms. 
As soon as I got in there, you know, I was cursed and called a nigger and accused of uh, being involved with a Brett Miller's murder. I denied it. Did you think it was going to go on this long? Did you ever think that you would be in that in that situation for as long as you were? No, you know, I thought maybe two, three years, but it wound up being 40, 43 or 44 years. Did you ever give up hope? Oh, no. That's the one thing I didn't give up. You know, when this first started out, we knew that if we were going to survive, we had to look strength from the outside, from society. So instead of turning inward and become institutionalized, we decided that we would turn outward to society. And what do you mean by that, by trying to stay up on the news? Or what do you mean by turning outward instead of inward? Well, in prison, you be, you can become institutionalized, and your sole purpose is to cultivate and maintain a prison culture that usually involves immoral, illegal, and brutal conditions, usually inflicted upon prisoners by prisoners and by security staff. And you determined that you would not participate in that? that. I would not become mm-hmm. institutionalized. Mm-hmm that I would not allow prison staff to define who I was and what I believed in. In total, the Angola Three spent more than 100 years in solitary. And, Albert, at the time that you left a month ago, there were still more than 100 other inmates at Angola who were held in long-term segregation. And I'm, I'm just wondering... Albert, if you hope that they will be released, or do you? Is anything changing about the attitudes about solitary confinement at Angola? Well, yes, naturally, I'm concerned with uh, the guys that are still in the solitary confinement, uh, and so what kept me strong at times was that I knew that I had a voice out there in the society, and. And the entire time when Robert left prison to the day I walked out of, he has never broken a fate. I'm not sure how many men in this world can measure to that. He has set a high standard. To do anything less than what he did, I think would be a grief, dishonor to him. And that's not going to happen. Mr. Woodfox, what are you going to do the rest of your day now that it's up to you? Well, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I am sure that I will continue to devote my life to defending those who can't defend themselves and protect those who need protecting. Well, thank you, Mr. Woodfox. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Albert Woodfox and Robert King are the surviving members of the Angola Three. Along with the late Herman Wallace, they spent more than 100 years in solitary confinement at Louisiana State Penitentiary, known as Angola. And they spoke with us from our member station, WWNO, in New Orleans. Mr. Woodfox, Mr. King, I thank you both so much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Let's dig in a little more now on Brooklyn DA Ken Thompson deciding not to press for prison time for NYPD officer Peter Liang, 
convicted of manslaughter for shooting a Kai Gurley in the stairwell of a public housing building in Brooklyn as Mr. Gurley was unarmed and apparently doing nothing wrong. Is it still justice without prison time? With us now, John Jay College of Criminal Justice Police Science Professor Eugene O'Donnell, a former police officer and former prosecutor himself. Professor O'Donnell, welcome back to WNYC. Thanks. Good morning, Brian. So D.A. Thompson said the case was about justice, not revenge. Would prison time in cases like this usually be seen as revenge? Well, it's messaging. You're sending a message to the person who's the offender, in this case the officer, but then there's a broader message. Uh, and really the broader message here is aimed at police officers and people who carry firearms, and that is that there really can't be mistakes, that there has to be great care given. And when a life is lost, you have to account for that life. It's not enough to simply say, I didn't mean to shoot him. There's going to have to be some accounting for that. The, the NYPD does everything they can uh, to create an atmosphere where there's firearm safety, and they do have firearm safety. These are very, very rare events. Uh, that includes having a, a gun that's pretty hard to fire. Uh, so they, the, the, the message in the criminal justice system is that not all un, unintended um, discharges of firearms are simply going to be treated as accidents. So D.A. Thompson said Yang's incarceration is not necessary because he's not a threat to future public safety and due to the unique circumstances of this case. Did he elaborate on what he meant by the unique circumstances of this case? Well, it's a person who's there, the officer, not by his choice, by being directed to be there. And it's one of the more challenging assignments uh, in, in, in the police business, uh, in the pink houses. And uh, he's an on-duty officer doing a patrol, intending no malice or harm to Mr. Gurley, and unintentionally causing his death. That doesn't mean he's completely relieved of criminal responsibility, but he's at the low end of being blamed uh, and being punished. Uh, he is being held uh, accountable. He's been convicted of a felony. Uh, he's lost his job. He'll probably never work in law enforcement again. And uh, he's being held to account. Uh, again, not just uh, this is an issue not just about him, but it's a larger issue. Uh, NYPD has 35,000 uh, armed people who carry weapons on and off duty. And uh, the department has a culture where they really minimize uh, the, the risk of, of weapons being discharged. And there's very, it's virtually unheard of. Uh, it's a small, small number of, uh, of incidents. And this will underscore to NYPD people, anybody in law enforcement, that it's, an, it's a gravely serious matter to carry a weapon uh, on duty or off duty. So, listeners, is this even-handed justice, in your opinion? D.A. Ken Thompson of Brooklyn going after this conviction, winning the conviction. The police officer now has this manslaughter on his record been fired from the police force but not seeking prison time does this work for you 212-433-WNYC 212-433-9692 with Eugene O'Donnell former police officer and former prosecutor police science professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice so Patrick Lynch president of the police officers union says if the unique circumstances argue for no prison time then the case should never have been pro uh, brought in the first place that officer always said this was an accident in a dark hallway. D.A. Thompson cited the dark hallway as a mitigating circumstance. How does the D.A. square his own two interpretations of the same events? Well, this just underscores uh, to your listeners and to everybody that you can 
commit crimes, meaning to commit crimes, and you can also get up in the morning and commit a crime that you had no intention of committing and be criminally responsible for the day's end. Driving certainly comes to mind, something that you've talked about, and it's really a hot issue at this point. Uh, people texting and speeding and taking lights. Uh, not everything you do behind the wheel of a car is just an accident. If is somebody is, do you know the standard? If somebody is convicted of, say, criminally negligent homicide, if that's the right charge to refer to, uh, because of, of uh, a, a traffic crash, uh, do they serve prison time? Uh, generally, no. And that's actually been an area that's been in flux. It's actually hard to pin down what it takes to cross the threshold from just civilly being responsible to being criminally responsible. Uh, but certainly, uh, if you look at people that are driving on uh, any given day in Manhattan, you'll see people that are going 20 miles over the speed limit. They're taking red lights. They're cutting other motorists off. And they're going to say when there's an accident, inevitably, this is, you know, when there's an incident, they're going to say it's an accident. Uh, but really, this, the, the law says that some of that could be culpable. We right. can be criminally responsible and, and punished. Now, punishment doesn't mean incarceration. Right. Uh, there are many ways to punish, many ways to make examples of people and to show that their conduct is blameworthy without putting them behind bars. Didn't the DA go to great pains to prove to the jury beyond a doubt that this was not just an accident, that Officer Liang had to make an affirmative decision to pull the trigger and therefore no accident, and that was part of the basis for the conviction? Right. I think, you know, to play on words, the officer, I think what they did say, there's no meaning, uh, no intent to hurt Gurley. There was no malice towards Gurley, except after the fact, which may, may be an interesting issue on appeal because they did bring in a lot of prejudicial stuff about the officer not rendering aid. But uh, the, the allegation here is that there was, a, there was an egregious lack of care, uh, and, and that's what the jury appears to have bought. And they even, you know, jurors spoke about this. Uh, at least one juror said they didn't want to convict, but they felt that it, was, it crossed the threshold, clearly crossed the threshold be, between a mistake, an accident, and something more serious, a gross deviation yeah. and the standard of care that somebody would observe. And so did the DA address not seeking prison time on the basis of the arguably more egregious behavior of the officer after the shooting and not following up to save um, Akai Gurley's life? Well, it's interesting as to whether one has anything to do with the other, and that I think maybe even an appellate issue. I think they criminalized or argued that it was sort of criminal for him not to do first aid. I'm not sure that's right, uh, and I'm not sure that anyone who's trained in first aid has the competence to do first aid, especially after they've been involved in a traumatic incident. Uh, so we'll see. But uh, that allowed them to paint a picture of him um, and, and allowed the jurors to, consider, jurors to consider the type of person he was, sort of his character, and that may have damaged his uh, his ability to defend his the claims against him on whether or not he was careful or not. A statement on behalf of Akai Gurley's family says the DA is now sending the message that police officers who kill innocent people should not face serious consequences. Here is Akai Gurley's aunt, Hortensia Peterson. This is a slap in the face to Akai Gurley. His life did not mean anything to D.A. Thompson. How can you tell me it's okay to murder, to take an innocent life and not be held accountable? So it really gets to the question of what consequences means, right? If this sends the message that police shootings in the line of duty produce no consequences, as the Gurley family's uh, argument goes, then that's one thing. I think you were saying before that, and certainly the, the officer would say, yeah, there have been plenty of consequences 
incarceration isn't necessarily uh, included for there to be serious consequences on this man's life. Right. I mean, if you're driving your car and you hit somebody and you kill them, they're dead. But that's generally not criminal. So people are dead in situations that are not criminal. Uh, on the other side of that, the family references this being a murder, that usually involves somebody intending uh, to kill somebody or being involved in what we would call super reckless conduct. So people can, can be killed in a variety of uh, scenarios, and, and the criminal law recognizes this. And what, what the actor does, the, the person who's involved in causing the death, we measure their blameworthiness, and not all people are equally blameworthy. In this case, he's on the low end of blame, uh, but he's still criminally responsible. The jury found that he was not careful. He acted egregious, with egregious disregard for, for safety. So it, it's, a, it's certainly a little confusing. I think the courts themselves sometimes have a hard time drawing the lines, and I understand the family's upset. But, but this is not your typical police shoot-don't-shoot shoot scenario. This is an outlier. It's an exceptional case. It's a, this is more akin to the police responding to a call recklessly driving a car too quickly than it is to uh, a shoot-don't-shoot shoot situation where an officer says, my, my, I, I feared that I was going to be killed. He made no such claim here. Uh, he simply uh, uh, fessed up and said, the, you know, I fired this gun. I didn't mean to kill this person. And in that sense, probably through those words alone, uh, he was well on his way to a criminal conviction. I want to be a cop. Three people are charged in a brutal beating that started in Uptown Greenville and ended on ECU's campus. But it's what happened after the fight that has an East Carolina University police officer under investigation. We have team coverage on what ECU officials are saying and reaction from students. We begin with Lynette Taylor, who is on campus tonight. Lynette. Well, Dave, East Carolina Chancellor says he's appalled about what happened during the early morning hours of March 17th when a fight broke out at a nightclub and spilled out onto campus where I'm standing near on West End. Now, to compound the issue, he says, is the fact that the officer put the victim in handcuffs, and now that officer is under investigation. In front of Club 519 off Cotant Street, a verbal altercation between a man and woman turned violent. The Greenville police say 26-year-old Patrick Myrick struck the woman in the face, knocking her down. That's when her friends stepped in. Several white people chased a black person, and uh, that certainly gives us reason to ask a lot of questions. Officers say Myrick was attacked outside of the Jimmy John's. He then ran off towards West End Campus, where he was beaten again. Warrants say he suffered a broken nose, two swollen eyes, cut lips, and several kicks to the head. The fight was over, but ECU Police Chief Gerald Lewis says one of their officers may not have followed protocol when Myrick was found on campus. Number one was the response. Number two was the handcuffing of the victim. So we just want to make sure that all the rules and protocols in our departmental standard operating procedures were followed. The university identified that officer as Sergeant Ralph Whitehurst, a white officer who has been on the force for years and is a squad leader, but now on leave pending their internal investigation. Suspects in the case were also identified. One ECU student, 25-year-old Teresa Lee. Two other men, 26-year-old Mark Humbles and 33-year-old Mark Privet, are charged with assault. Lee is no longer enrolled after what happened. And the chancellor emphasizes they will not tolerate the thought of racial bias on campus. What happened in the early morning of March 17th is not ECU. It's not who we are. It's not who we are as a people. It does not reflect any of our values. We're going to do everything we can to continue to build a positive learning climate here. 
Well, Greenville Police is still looking for a fourth suspect in this case. There is a surveillance picture of them on our website at WITN.com. Kristen Hunter with Greenville Police says that at this time, they do not believe the assault was racially charged. Reporting live in, live in Greenville, Lynette Taylor, WITN News. All right, thanks, Lynette. And Ariel Placencia is also live on ECU's campus with what students are saying after learning about this crime. Ariel? Dave, as you heard in Lynette's story, the university is concerned with the actions of Sergeant Ralph Whitehurst handcuffing the victim in the assault upon his arrival. ECU Police Chief Gerald Lewis says Whitehurst did not use appropriate protocol by handcuffing Patrick Merrick. Lewis says Whitehurst has been with the department for, quote, a number of years and is a squad leader for one of the department's four squads. Today, we spoke with ECU students for their thoughts on what happened. ECU police patrol all the time, and I've never been racially profiled from any of them. They've always been like very nice and I mean like their job is to protect us. They're trying to sort it out so he might put him in handcuffs trying to sort it out and um, and hopefully later they figured it out once they talked to people that were actually there. ECU says the police officer has been placed on leave pending an internal investigation. And Dave, when I asked students if they thought that assaults on campus are a problem, they told me that they're okay with people standing up and fighting back when the assault involves a man hitting a woman. Reporting live in Greenville, I'm Ariel Placentia, WITN News. All right, thanks, Ariel. And ECU Chancellor Steve Ballard says that they will continue their efforts in diversity training of inclusion to make sure that everyone on campus is on the same page. postal worker is fighting back tonight after he claims he was wrongfully arrested while on the job and the incident was caught on video. News 12 Brooklyn's Kenna Vernon was or has more on how the borough president is teaming up with the man to ask for justice. This is cell phone video of postal worker Glenn Gray is being taken away in handcuffs by plainclothes NYPD officers. Gray's family says it stems from an incident that happened before the cameras were rolling. As soon as I saw the video I immediately started crying because I worry about all my boys every day, every minute, every second of every day. They claim last Thursday, while Grays was delivering mail on President Street in Crown Heights, a car zoomed by him, dangerously too close. Grays yelled at the car, but didn't realize they were NYPD officers inside the unmarked car. He was arrested afterwards. Grays couldn't speak to us on camera because of pending litigation, but his mother spoke to us on his behalf. If the cop could have just humbled himself and just let it go, it would have been a lot. It would have been a lot easier. Now, Borough President Eric Adams is throwing his support behind Gray's and urging the NYPD to take disciplinary action against the officers involved. You're trying to figure out, you know, what went wrong, and then when you see a video that shows nothing went wrong, it's hard to not believe that the only reason Glenn was handcuffed is because of the color of his skin. The borough president tells News 12 the NYPD said Grays was disorderly, resisted arrest, and was issued a summons. We reached out to the NYPD and they said the matter is under internal review. At Borough Hall, Ken Vernon News 12, Brooklyn.
Michigan with a Department of Correction employee accused of assaulting a mailman. Waterbury police arrested 42-year-old Daniel Alvarado after a fight broke out Saturday afternoon. Alvarado was accused of breaking bones in the mailman's face and yelling racial slurs. NBC Connecticut's Justin Shecker live outside the Waterbury Police Department with our top story. Justin. Well, Jerry and Keisha, tonight we've learned that the Department of Correction has placed Correctional Lieutenant Daniel Alvarado on leave. The Waterbury man assigned to the correctional facility in Bridgeport is facing his own criminal charges for the brutal attack on a mailman. Saturday afternoon, Waterbury police say 42-year-old Daniel Alvarado confronted U.S. Postal Service mail carrier Roshane Thompson after watching him urinate in the woods near his home on New Ridge Drive. Mr. Alvarado was armed when he first approached the mail carrier. There was a, an exchange of words between the two and a fight broke out. Police say Alvarado pointed the gun at Thompson before handing it to his girlfriend. Officers later seized the pistol as evidence. It's completely inappropriate with that with that gentleman did. He wasn't allowed to do that by any stretch, by any means. Um, when you have a firearm, you're meant to be an asset to society, not a liability. When Waterbury police arrived, they say they found the mailman lying in the street next to his truck with a large cut above his right eye. They say Alvarado smashed his head into the pavement while yelling racial slurs. Nigga! Deplorable language, things that uh, you wouldn't expect to hear this day and age. According to the police report obtained by NBC Connecticut, Thompson suffered a broken eye socket. A witness says she heard Alvarado shout, I'm going to kill you during the beatdown. We knocked on the Connecticut Department of Correction Lieutenant's door. Hey, Mr. Alvarado, uh, A woman answered and immediately slammed it shut. We've gotten complaints from mailmen about uh, dogs chasing them, uh, you know, issues with different animals and things like that, but uh, never, never an issue that I can recall where uh, a mail carrier has been assaulted. A Postal Service spokesperson points out assaulting a mail carrier is a federal offense. Now, Waterbury police have charged Alvarado with assault with a firearm, reckless endangerment, and bigotry for those racial slurs. He posted his bond, and now he's due in court on March 29th. We're live in Waterbury tonight. I'm Justin Shecker, NBC Connecticut News. Family says they're scared and hurt after they found a hateful racial slur spray painted on their car. And tonight the community is coming out to show their support for the family. Some are even strangers. Tina Patel is live in Greenwood with what they found. Tina? Well, David, the spray paint has been cleared off the car that was here on the driveway, but you can still see some of the evidence of that vandalism from last night here on this nearby railing. Just like everybody else. When Denise Madden and her family walked out to their driveway this morning. Isn't that fantastic? They saw this. Guess we're going to have to get that cleaned off. A racial slur spray painted on their new truck. It was upsetting to me. I couldn't believe that someone would write on our car and write something like that. It's very offensive and negative and it's something that I've never experienced. Vandals also spray painted Madden's other car, but she can't make out the image. Madden says the message on the truck is clear. My husband didn't want to go to work. He was trying to scrape it off with a screwdriver because he didn't want anybody to see it on the truck when he was at work. Men says her children saw the notorious racial slur and it's been tough trying to explain what it means. They're kids and that's it. They're not black, they're not white, they're not mixed, they're just kids. 
and they shouldn't have to see or deal with any of this ever. Ben reached out to her neighbors on social media to find out if this had happened to anyone else. It hadn't, but Madden is overwhelmed by the support from her community. It's not okay to, you know, vandalize people's homes, especially not with hate speech. I wanted them to know that um, as much as there are, you know, racist people around that are going to do this kind of thing, that there are anti-racist people around too. One neighbor who owns an auto body shop, a stranger before today, volunteered to remove the offensive word for free. Madden is grateful her family won't have to see the evidence of hate anymore, but she says erasing the hurt won't be as easy. You would think at this point in this day and age that that's not what's happening. Now, the family says they will be filing a report with Seattle police, and they're going to ask if this is investigated as a bias crime or hate crime. We checked with police, and they say of the biased incidents that were reported last year, about 30% of them were against African Americans. Live in Greenwood, Tina Patel, Q13 News. villains at the Trump rallies this weekend. Uh, I think um, I think if you were to really look at what took place, especially in Tucson, there's an argument to be made that maybe it's an actual Trump supporter or it's a protester. Right. Certainly the protests that happened here in the valley and the blocking of the roads. We'll get to that a little bit later. That was awful. I don't I didn't appreciate that at all. Don't block the roads. You want to protest, go block. Don't block the roads. But in Tucson, there were there were a couple of different things happening. Um, the first thing I think we should talk about is uh, what happened with a, a anti-Trump protester at a rally in Tucson. He kind of got the tar kicked out of him. Yeah, there was a guy who had an American flag on and was holding up a sign or, or a picture of Donald Trump. With some anti-Trump speech on it, nothing racial, nothing, n- nothing that you know, blank you, nothing like that. But he got jack stomped by a Trump supporter, and the thing that surprised us the most is this Trump supporter is African American. Well, I don't know. If, yeah, I mean, I did, I are did, we surprised that that the Trump supporter is black and he's the one that beat up the white guy? I'll I'll say it. Yes, because I, it hasn't. I, I I was surprised. It hasn't been like that. Right. right. Uh, we've seen black guys get hit. We've seen black people at Trump rallies get Be removed, escorted because they were silently protesting. But this was a Trump supporter who was black. Who, as the guy was holding up his sign, just sucker punched the guy. Well, I think I think we've got to uh, we've got to say this that that. The guy, the white guy, who is an anti-Trump guy, he's a, he's the protester. Um, he he was being escorted out, but the woman behind him was what I noticed mm-hmm. a female protester right behind this guy who got punched. She was wearing a KKK hood. Now she is a protester, not a Trump supporter. She is a protester. So, well, that's yeah, it's weird. She goes there. She's a protester. She puts the Trump. Uh, she puts the the KKK thing on the hood. The hood. And 
I was she trying to say I'm a Trump supporter and look how bad I am because I hate black people and Trump supports the KKK. I think she was trying to to, to do that, but not many people were buying that. Um, I, I don't know. I, this 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 black guy who is a Trump supporter really clocked yeah. a man named Brian Stomped Sanders. Yeah. Stomped on him and was arrested, rightfully so. Yeah. But again, you do not know what's going to happen at these Trump events. I mean, you think, you think you've seen everything or you think you understand, okay, I know what to expect this time. The, no, no, forget it. You have people in KKK hoods Ugh. who are who are bashing Trump. They're, yeah. uh, you know, and then you have an African American male who went to see Donald Trump right. and likes Donald Trump, and then sucker punches and gets into it with a Trump supporter. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, a Trump protester. <sighs> yeah, Brian Sanders was the guy who got stomped. My name is Brian Sanders. I'm an independent. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I was protesting Trump's fascism, his racism, his lies, and his women-hating. I had a sign that said, Trump is bad for America. The guy grabbed the sign out of my hand as I was being escorted out of the building and sucker-punched me. I was also here at the Bernie Sanders rally last night. Nobody got punched. Nobody got thrown out. There were no protests. And the reason is that there's two different things going on here. You got this, which is fascism and an angry mob. And then you got what happened last night with Bernie. And that's democracy right there. But we're going to stop this. This is not going to continue. If it takes somebody getting punched in the face, that's what it takes. No problem. Okay, so according to this guy. Brian Sanders, an uh, anti-Trump protester. Right. No relation to Bernie, by the way. Right. According to him. The people who are protesting are all good people, no problems whatsoever oh, on bull. their side. Oh, bull. Ask the Tucson cop yeah. who was there what happened, because there was a Tucson cop yeah. that, that did not was not involved in this in, in, in the Sanders arrest he wasn't, or it, he, it being escorted. He wasn't in uniform. He went to the Tucson rally for Donald Trump. Right. He wanted to attend it. He wanted to observe it. He was a neutral observer. Yeah. He just said, I wanted to see what this was all about. Calling them a racist, calling people that were involved racists and haters. And the funny thing is, these people are the most hateful, evil people that I've ever seen. I could not believe what I saw. So, so this guy is talking about the protesters and how the protesters are the most hateful people he's ever seen. Not the Trump supporters. Right. This cop who was just, a, he says, a neutral observer. Mm-hmm. He wasn't dressed in a uniform. He wasn't, you know, he just went to see. He said the anti-Trump protesters were the most hateful people I've ever seen. Mm. So, I, again, what do you expect at a Donald Trump rally? I'll just say pure chaos. I don't know. People were verbally violent. So he's talking about the protesters. Yeah. People were verbally violent at the door, yelling, saying, F Donald Trump. I mean, being outrageous. Um, very, very uncomfortable feeling. I mean, people were directly yelling at me as if I'm a criminal. And all I'm trying to do is just hear what the man have to say. I, I didn't wear anything supporting Donald Trump. I was very neutral with this black shirt and khakis on. So if this cop who was at the Tucson rally says the protesters, they were cursing, yep. they were out of control, but did they hit anybody? See, I don't. Well, they didn't. I, I, well, they didn't. Well, I mean, yeah, we did not see any video or we did not hear any reports of the anti-Trump protesters. Mm-hmm. The only person but, that, that struck another person was a Trump supporter. Yeah. Okay? So I don't know who's the villain in this story. Is it the Trump supporter? 
you know, and, and there was only one person. I mean, there was only one person who was a Trump supporter that got violent, and one is one is enough. I, I, I get it. But then you have the protesters who they're they're egging on the Trump supporters. Right. They're yelling obscenities. Right. They're cursing. And they're this screaming. Cop, this cop said he felt in danger. And he again, he's a trained professional, and he said, I didn't want to be there. He's an African-American Tucson cop. Did he feel unsafe because of the protesters? Because there maybe some of the Trump supporters were right yelling and, and maybe wanting to get violent? Or is he like, I'm black, and I know what happens at Trump rallies sometimes? I don't know. I don't know, which, I don't know what the answer is. And I'm a police officer, and I, and I have been through a lot of dramatic situations. And I have to be honest, I felt very uncomfortable there. I mean, there was a lot of police officers there or whatever, but I personally, I felt uncomfortable. I felt like at any moment with the climate of these protesters, this wasn't the people that was involved in Trump's rally. It was these protesters that at any moment, I could get sucker punched by somebody because they're just outrageously screaming and yelling. And it's only going to get worse. Yeah. In, in New York City, there were hundreds of protesters at Trump Tower, and they had the signs out. They were screaming. This is something that when Donald Trump gets the nomination, is only going to get worse all around the country. There are there are you people mean at, at Cleveland in the at the uh, when when Trump most likely gets, gets the, the nomination. nomination. Even if he doesn't, if there's a brokered convention and they choose somebody else, yep. it could get violent. It could get violent, but that might be the Trump supporters who feel that they were screwed. Right now, you've got protesters right. who are furious yeah. that Donald Trump is even in this position, right. going so far as to curse and, and one person wearing a KKK hood. I don't know who the villain is. How I would do have you... to. I would have to lean, I think, the villain, uh, it's hard, man. You had a Trump supporter knock down and kick a guy. Right. But then you've got all these other protesters who are at the rallies. When do you ever And they're think acting like two-year-olds. To protest, when do you think it's a good idea to wear a KKK Never. hood? Never. Never. I don't get that either. I really don't. And yet, that's what went on in Tucson. Yeah. I, I don't think I'd want to go to a Trump rally. And it's not just because there are, uh, you know, one or there was one bad apple. In the Tucson crowd that right. we could see, right. the African American man who punched, sucker punched, sucker somebody. punched a Trump, uh, an anti-Trump protester. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote, so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in. I spent 11 years on a job where where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day, day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail. Black people have white having white probation officers, and, and the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is just. Uh, could have been, some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. On to tonight, a jury selection controversy in Wharton County. The district attorney is accused of excluding African Americans from a jury. As our Phil Archer reports, the DA is denying those claims. 
There were no African Americans on the jury that recently convicted 30-year-old Cassandra Ware of aggravated assault. Her attorney, Mark Racer, raised objections before the trial when three potential black jurors were struck by prosecutors. When the jury was seated and I looked at my chart to see where everybody was seated, I, I realized that there were three African Americans struck by the state. Um, and they were, you know, which left no African Americans on the on the jury. But after Ware was convicted, one of the prosecutors admitted in court that he'd been told by his boss, Wharton County DA Ross Kurtz, to keep African Americans off the jury. I was not instructed to strike black jurors so much as I was advised or encouraged to do so as a matter of trial strategy, Assistant DA Nathan Wood said, adding that it made him feel uncomfortable. Wood also insisted that three African-Americans were not excluded because of their race. The district attorney declined to discuss the case on camera because sentencing is still pending. In a written statement, Ross Kurtz said, quote, My instructions and guidance have always been and will always be that prosecutors should not take race into account in exercising the choices allowed by law on which potential jurors to strike. But Mark Racer says that's clearly not the message Kurtz communicated to his assistants. I think it's in his best interest sometimes, and I think that he, you know, he wants to win. Uh, and sometimes I think he wants to win too much and goes too far. Racer says he's planning to ask the judge to declare a mistrial in the case. And he says there should be a review of past trials in Wharton County where blacks have been excluded from juries. In Wharton, I'm Phil Archer, KPRC Channel 2 News. To the beat. We're gonna make it, that's for sure. If you're stressed, then let it go. Professor King, what was the purpose of your study? So we wanted to look more at a phenomenon called whitening, which we had started hearing about from our students within the last few years. Um, students who were applying for jobs were telling us that um, they had started to change information on their resumes in order to make it less obvious what racial group they were from. They told us this is something that they had done, that their friends were doing, um, and sometimes even something that they were told to do by career counselors. So we wanted to know whether whitening, changing your name or experience um, in order to appear white or at least uh, less obvious what racial group you're from, is something that people were actually doing when applying for jobs, how they were doing it, why they were doing it. Um, and what kind of a, an effect it was having on employers. So how did you do this study? So we had a few different parts to our study. Um, first, we conducted some interviews in order to just get a better, deeper understanding of um, what the phenomenon is. So what people are changing, um, why they're doing it, how they're doing it. Then we did an experiment where we specifically looked at how people react to job ads based on whether or not those job ads mention diversity. So whether people say they're pro-diversity employer or not. And then in a third study, we actually sent out resumes to 1,600 different jobs, which varied according to whether the jobs were pro-diversity or not. 
In terms of the results from our interviews, we found that roughly a third of minorities in our sample reported that they had personally engaged in whitening, um, and up to two-thirds said that they knew someone else who had. And then they also told us that whitening was something that they would be much less likely to do if they were applying for jobs that specifically mentioned being pro-diversity. So in our final study, we wanted to know, well, is this really a good idea? Is it a good idea to put yourself out there? Is it a good idea to reveal your race and be really open about your racial group when you're applying to those pro-diversity jobs? So we actually sent out resumes to 1,600 different jobs. And some of them, half of them, we took out the racial information. So basically, we whitened resumes. Um, and then the other half, it was obvious that the applicant was a member of, uh, was either African American or Asian American. So this was a study that we did in the U.S. Half of the job ads that we replied to were pro-diversity. So this is something we've all seen where employers would say, you know, we're an equal opportunity employer. We encourage applicants from diverse groups. Um, and half of them didn't mention anything like that. So what we found was that there was about two, two times higher callback rate for the resumes that we sent out that we had whitened. So where we actually removed the racial information. Um, and kind of troubling is that this gap between the whitened and unwhitened resumes was no different for the pro-diversity employers. So for the employers who said that they value diversity, they're equal opportunity employers, um, they were just as likely to discriminate against those racially transparent uh, resumes than employers who didn't even mention diversity at all. How did you react to that result? So it's pretty shocking. I think it's um, troubling because what we see is that minorities themselves are telling us that they're willing to be more open. They're willing to be really um, transparent as to their race, you know, give their real names, highlight their real experiences that might be tied to a specific racial group when they are replying to uh, a pro-diversity employer. But then we saw that those pro-diversity employers aren't actually less likely to discriminate. So really what, what seems to be happening is that those job ads, those employers are kind of setting up almost like a false sense of security where people feel like they can be open about themselves, but then they just go ahead and discriminate to the same extent as um, employers who don't mention diversity at all. What should be done with these results, do you think? So I think that these kinds of results are um, a good indication to employers that to take a look at those diversity statements um, and realize that they haven't really solved the problem of discrimination. I think we have employers now who really do value diversity. They know that diversity is something that they want. They want to stop discriminating against minority applicants. Um, and I think that they've put those diversity statements into place thinking that that will solve the problem. So I think that the thinking behind those diversity statements is that if those statements are in place, it'll encourage minorities to apply, um, and that'll sort of just solve the problem of diversity on its own. It'll just kind of go away. Um, but what our study shows is that those, those diversity statements aren't really doing anything on their own. So what really needs to happen is a uh, closer look needs to be taken at hiring practices. You know, how are hiring managers going through resumes? How can that process be changed in order to make it more likely for minorities to actually get a callback? Thank you so much for this. Can you let me know right now, please? The Nita Applebaum. Gotta put me on, but
when an artist dies and you feel like you are mourning a friend because of the connection you had to their work? That question was tweeted yesterday by Kenyan musician Bill Salanga. Blinky Bill, as he's known wherever he performs around the globe with his group Just a Band or as a DJ. Blinky tweeted that after learning of the death of Fife Dog born Malik Isaac Taylor, one of the founders and key voices of hip-hop pioneers A Tribe Called Quest. Blinky watched them on MTV as a teenager in Nairobi. It was just very cool to see uh, black people who are American trying to connect with with us as Africans. I, I was very much drawn to their sound and and even the aesthetic that they were putting out. Tell me more about that aesthetic, because a lot of people have been talking about that in the last few days. What was it about Tribe Called Quest that made you want to listen to more? The music felt catchy, but not in a forced way. You know, there's, there's sometimes when you can tell that people are trying to sell you their music. And then you can also tell people who are just making music because they love it. And I've always felt like Tribe Called Quest had that in them. That, In fact, there's one of the lyrics where Five says, Tribe Called Quest, you know we're never going pop. <laughs> we're never going to stop. Something to that that effect. Yeah. I, I just like it. I've been listening to Check the Rhyme today. I, I'd love to know what you think MCs can learn from it. What Fife brought in the group for me, it felt like it's a nice variation to Q-Tip's voice. It's, it's just it's, it's, it comes in at the right time because Q-Tip's voice is a bit nasal, mm-hmm. and just having having him check in in whichever song you're listening to, it's like hey, some some fresh stuff. And there's that there's a there's a there's that song. I like it when I like him white, black, Puerto Rican, and Haitian. Name is Five Dog from the Zulu Nation. Whenever I play that song when I'm DJing, everyone knows that lyric and everyone is singing along. I like them brown, yellow, Puerto Rican, and Haitian. Name is Fight Dog from the Zulu Nation. So you're in the jam that we can get down. Now let's knock the boots like the group H Town. You got BBD all on your bedroom. And even if his role, for the most part, was understated, he brought such a unique, unique and fresh vibe into the group that. You can't even, you can never ignore it. Well, we will go out with Check the Rhyme today. Musician, DJ, and producer Blinky Bill Salenga joining me from Nairobi, speaking with me about the late Fife Dog from A Tribe Called Quest. Blinky, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Peace and love to Fife Dog and his family. I don't get the message, so you got to run the pitch. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. You're on point, Fife. All the time, Tip. But then grab the microphone and let your words rip. Now here's a funky introduction of how nice I am. Tell your mother, tell your father, send a telegram. I'm like an energizer because you see I last long. My crew is never, ever whack because we stand strong. Now if you say my style is whack, I swear you're dead wrong. I say that body and El Segundo, then push it along. You'll be a fool to reply the fight was not the man. Because you know and I know that you On know point all the time. Fife Dog didn't just influence Nairobi's rap scene. He also tapped hip-hop's Caribbean roots and changed the sound of New York-style hip-hop. Our 
full story plus a playlist of some of our favorite Fife tracks are at PRI.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios here at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Back tomorrow. When you're dead wrong I slay that body And El Segundo Then push it along You'll be a fool To reply The fight is not the man Cause you know And I know on point all the time. Pipe Dog didn't just influence Nairobi's rap scene, he also tapped hip-hop's Caribbean roots and changed the sound of New York-style hip-hop. Our full story plus a playlist of some of our favorite Pipe tracks are at PRI.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios here at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Back tomorrow. Context of White Supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 26th, 2016. So I have been told, I think it's also Gil Scott Heron's 67th birthday. I would have uh, included uh, some of his tunes as well, but we do that pretty regularly anyway and made an effort to uh, include a lot of Tribe Call Quest stuff today. Compensatory call-in, feel free to chime in if you would like to participate. If you have observations from the last seven days, certainly we will make time uh, for workplace racism. Uh, any of the audio clips that you heard or other news segments uh, from this past week, feel free to dial in the number 641-715-3640. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate Fundraising for 2016. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. The address again. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, when you hit the blog, you will see the PayPal button in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a physical mailing address. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested uh, down through the years. I uh, hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Certainly, you can always support the broadcast, share the content, put it on Twitter, Facebook. If you have other social media sites, you have your own web page. Certainly, you can link uh, to the program or individual episodes. Uh, if you think it would benefit victims of racism, non-white people to access the content, get a better understanding of what white supremacy is, how it works, things we can do to neutralize this system ASAP. Uh, quick comments that uh, I will get before we hit the phone lines for folks who have anything that they would like to uh, share. Uh, I mentioned uh, when Lauren Cresslove was on the program earlier this week, always a privilege uh, to speak with Dr. Welsing's sister. Uh, when she was with us earlier this week at the uh, kind of tail end of the broadcast, uh, the incident that happened in Arizona, there was a news clip uh, today uh, about what happened there where they had the image of uh, a black attendee at a Trump rally physically assaulting uh, this white person. 
uh, and that got a lot of attention this week. Uh, and I gave my thoughts on it this week. Uh, and uh, people gave different views about that. Uh, I will double down on what I said then uh, during the Tuesday broadcast. The main point to take away from all of this, and uh, I felt this way for quite some time, all of these incidents that have happened at Trump rallies, I am suspicious of all of them. Uh, I, I suspect uh, strongly that these could be staged incidents uh, to be able to splash this on television, uh, particularly since most of it has been black people uh, being violated and stomped and pushed and even uh, further uh, terrorized and abused. When the enforcement officials come in, they generally are not going after the people that are doing the molesting. They just go get the black person even when they've been abused. Thank you. Heard that in the clip at uh, ECU this week as well. Uh, but that has a value in and of itself in a system of white supremacy, being able to show these images to whites around the globe of white people, excuse me, of black people being abused with impunity. Uh, that is racist theater. That is further motivation for white people to go out and terrorize black people right there. So, number one, I think these incidents uh, are staged. Second, with this incident uh, specifically, there's way too many, there are way too many bizarre elements uh, to this story. I know people commented and said that they think the black guy who is Staff Sergeant uh, Tony Petway, that's uh, reportedly his name, Staff Sergeant Tony Petway, which in my view should not be minimized. This guy's active duty uh, Air Force uh, in Arizona. This is someone who is supposedly trained in combat. So he voluntarily attends a Trump rally. At least that's what we've been told. So he attends this Trump rally and people, even Donald Trump, suggesting that he got upset because there was a white woman who had on a Klan hood who was behind the white man that he struck, Brian Sanders. And so he got so enraged uh, seeing this white woman in a Klan hood that he had to strike someone. That to me just does not make logical sense at all. Uh, number one, you're supposed to be trained in combat and you just fly off the handle. Even if he wasn't trained in combat, you're telling me that a black person, anyone, is surprised to see a white person doing something racist at a Donald Trump rally. That does not make sense to me at this point, particularly given all the attention on what's been happening at these Donald Trump rallies uh, over the last few months, not days, not weeks, but months that this has been going on. That does not make sense. Number two, he didn't strike the woman with the Klan hood on. He struck the white man. And even before he struck this white man, Brian Sanders, he snatched his sign and then he struck him. That seems very odd to me. You would go after the person with the Klan hood on, not somebody else who's randomly associated. The alleged protest of Brian Sanders, even his name, uh, because he said that he was at a Bernie, Sa uh, Bernie Sanders rally the day before, even that sort of thing where it's tying in like, oh, this is the guy that we should be going for. And they, they've just abused uh, the underdog candidate, Bernie Sanders. And then this guy who just happens to be Sanders gets pummeled uh, at this Trump rally. And oh, man, this is terrible. Even that. And I saw other people who said the same thing, that this seemed kind of suspicious to them with this guy's name and some other things uh, that happened uh, with this event. Uh, it just all of it, it to me, at least I saw the whole video. It looked like uh, the white guy, Brian Sanders, and the woman with the Klan uh, hood on. It looked like at least they were going through the antics of protesting uh, Donald Trump. That's what it looked like to me. And they were both being thrown out uh, at the same time uh, when this uh, incident happened, when sar a staff sergeant, Tony Petway, decided that he was going to take a swing uh, at this white guy. 
the main point staged, uh, I think this all could be an act as I, that's the case that I take with all of these, uh, events, I would be highly suspicious. And I even still see how that benefits the system of white supremacy, as you heard, uh, in the clip that now and say, Hey, it's not always just a race thing. We got a black guy who's doing the same thing. And wow, this is crazy. And, and just even being able to broadcast images of black people being violent and aggressive against white people that has a value in the system of white supremacy. Folks can certainly uh, share their different views on that. Also wanted to point out the uh, the clip that was closer towards the end about the employment. I thought that was extremely significant. I guess I can give a hat tip to some of our Canadian listeners. I do make an effort to check out more uh, Canadian media since we have more active, I guess, Canadian uh, listeners uh, on the program. Not that we haven't had them before. We've had investors and certainly Cynical African has been active supporter investor uh, for a number of years, guest on the program, cynicalafrican.com. But that clip came from a Canadian Canadian broadcast about the employment study that they did, even though it was conducted in the U S what I thought was interesting was that they said, not that I was surprised about uh, the whitened applicants, the applications where they had stripped any identifying information that might reveal the person's racial classification, their non-white status. I wasn't surprised that those applicants got a higher hit rate of responses and, you know, Hey, you can come in and we'll give you an interview. At least what I thought was significant was the fact that they said the jobs where they try to make it seem that, Hey, we're all about diversity and we encourage, you know, inclusion and we want a diverse workforce that they were just as likely to disregard the non-white applicants as everybody who did not make any sort of statements about we're about uh, diversity or being inclusive. Uh, To me, that just, again, suspicious of every all white people, I would say, especially the white people who try to say that we are not racist, you should be especially uh, suspicious of them, Timothy Wise and their ilk. Uh, but I thought that report was fascinating for that segment. Uh, tough week for the postal workers. Uh, there were quite a few of those. I'm sure folks will uh, have commentary that they would like to get in on that uh, as well. Uh, and I guess the last thing uh, I will get in. Uh, Before we get to the folks who uh, called in uh, the case with uh, Miriam Carey, Uh, we've talked about it over years, the black mother who was shot and killed in Washington, D.C. This is the autumn of 2013. Uh, We've talked about it before. Uh, SDOT has called in and talked about this uh, regularly. Uh, They've had updates uh, on WND. They've been kind of covering this uh, pretty extensively for I guess it's uh, closing in on three years now. Uh, But they have had updates uh, where officers have written uh, to the attorney, uh, Eric Sanders, the attorney for Miriam Carey's family, uh, saying that uh, officers were encouraged to lie about their stories, which is not a big surprise. In my view, uh, officers lying uh, when a black person has been shot and killed uh, or tased or whatever it is, choked to death, uh, that they were encouraged to lie, that they think uh, Miriam Carey was murdered. Uh, Just a lot of uh, really gruesome details uh, about this case. Uh, Posted it on the uh, Cal's Facebook page earlier this week. Uh, Just, you know, to make an effort that we do not forget. I know there's so many incidents uh, of terrorism worldwide against black people, but just trying to make an effort that we do not forget what happened 
uh, with that case. Uh, keep it in mind if you have the ability to write, uh, to do a video or whatever, a podcast, anything, uh, just to continue to keep uh, the name Miriam Carey uh, in people's minds on their brain computer uh, so they think they're thinking about what happened with this incident and sharing information so that people know more details uh, about this tragedy, uh, this black mother being killed in the nation's capital with her at the time, one year old daughter uh, in the back of the vehicle. With that, uh, we'll get ready to hit the uh, calls. Uh, just had to make sure I got in the name Patrice Lumumba uh, this week with everything that happened uh, in Belgium. Uh, I never forget uh, Belgium. Uh, they were responsible for a massive campaign of genocide on the continent of Africa, specifically uh, the Congo. And I mean, low estimates that they wiped out low estimate 10 million black people in the Congo through their reign. Uh, of terror. Uh, if anything, I did not shed any tears this week. I couldn't even say that this is chickens coming home to roost uh, because this would be pretty minimal in terms of what they did on the continent. Uh, the Belgian Empire, King Leopold. Uh, so, no, I did not feel bad. Uh, I would just encourage folks to do more research so that you have a better understanding of racism, white supremacy, and the long running narrative of white terrorism against black people worldwide. Uh, with that, uh, we'll hit the folks who dialed in. Uh, if you could take five minutes to share whatever comments uh, that you have, that would be grand. That way we can get to everyone who called in. Uh, then if we have additional time, if you have other things that you uh, would like to touch on, uh, we should have time for that as well. Uh, if you could watch the background noise, that would be great. If you know you're in a noisy environment or uh, you've, you know, just for whatever reason, you know, it's anything that might disrupt the quality of the broadcast. If you could use your mute button, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, if not, I can mute your line and then just open it to see what you have to say. Uh, also, uh, compensatory call in. No metaphors, no metaphors. That would be great. Uh, folks have done a better job. Uh, this is the only broadcast that we do on the cows where I specifically request that people not do metaphors this program and just in general as attempted counter racists. We are supposed to be making an effort to be a bit more mindful about what we say, how we use words. Uh, and so in that effort, uh, I've said consistently, uh, I have concluded that a lot of times when metaphors are employed, when we speak about racism, white supremacy, everybody, racists and victims of racism, uh, that it can cause a lot of confusion. I think racists do it deliberately, but I think a lot of times victims uh, just, you know, we're, we're still learning uh, that sometimes we use comparisons where we're not comparing things that are equivalent. Uh, where they are just adding to confusion about racism, white supremacy. Sometimes the metaphors uh, really are more to appeal to emotion as opposed to getting us to think logically about what's being said to make sure that, you know, what's being said actually is accurate, is logical, makes sense, as opposed to just getting us uh, getting us more with our feelings uh, to support a particular position uh, as opposed to just investigating and to make sure what we're hearing uh, actually makes sense. So we could not use metaphors. That would be great uh, doing a making an effort to challenge myself to call that out more and even calling myself out because I slip. It's it's widespread. Everyone uses metaphors. This is just uh, one broadcast. We try not to do so with that. We will hit the folks who dialed in. If you all have uh, questions, comments, observations, feel free. And the number again, six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, Four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate. 
uh, all, well, the first half of the folks who dialed in who have a hand up, you should be with us. Uh, feel free if you would like to share. Hi, Mr. Can I be heard? Uh, we'll get the female caller first. Hi, Mr. Renegade. Thanks a lot for taking my call. I wanted to make some comments on uh, one of the things you uh, just touched on related to the la one of the last um, news pieces about employment and diversity. And my, my view, I think, is similar to yours in that it's generally it's insincere. Um, I think these corporations, um, they say they want diversity, but really, where are these people going to come from? Certainly, they're not largely going to come from the black community because the investments in education for our people has been just diminishing astronomically over the years. Um, so there's no way they're really going to be coming from the black community. So where are they coming from? They're going to have to import them. And in some of these corporations, I think a lot of the diversity is captured in not among black people, but other groups, Asians, Hispanics, and so on. Um, and I've seen this for myself. And we all have to remember that Hispanic is not a racial ca category in the system. That's not a racial category. It's a so-called ethnic group. And so when you're called Hispanic, you then get to choose your racial classification. And it can be white or it can be black. And I think there are the other designations as well. And one of the things that really, I think, highlights this racial category or ethnic group of Hispanic is just take a look at the picture of President Obama with uh, Castro standing next to him. Look at the contrast. He's a white man, but I think he could classify himself as Hispanic or Latino if he were to come to this country or other folks from that part of the world. So this leads, this is really related to something I brought up um, last week during the um, workplace racism, this Hispanic category. It's to me, you know, my view is that they're sort of double dipping. So you can be white, but you can also be a minority and say you're Hispanic or Latino. So then you could be counted, I think, in these diversity numbers. Um, so I think it's really clever and really sort of diabolical because, again, Hispanic is not a race. Uh, it's an ethnic group and they can choose that category. Um, so that's my, my view on that. And I don't know if, if, if you, Mr. Renegade, have thought about this yourself. And so to me, the Cuba event is really about opening up the doorway so that perhaps we can get more white Hispanic people uh, here in the country to increase diversity, increase the numbers of people who are practicing racism, white supremacy. Mm -hmm. uh, double dipping is a metaphor, but uh, sorry, just no, no apologies needed. Just trying to do better uh, with the, the Cuba thing. Uh, that makes logical sense and i even think even before we got to what happened this week with president obama's visit there and them trying to say that they're going to improve relations uh they have been talking about this from a racial perspective for decades uh and talking about how they allowed uh i'm just getting a little bit of an echo see if i can take okay how they were talking about how they allowed a large number of uh, Cuban immigrants uh, over the years uh, when they were defectors are saying that they had a problem uh, with Castro and they didn't want to be there, blah, blah, blah. They allowed them to come. Uh, and a lot of these people were able to come here and be classified as white. Uh, and they looked at the difference in terms of the way that Trump and others for decades, this is not just a new phenomenon, but for decades, the way that they have treated people that have a little bit more melanin uh, from other areas in the Caribbean, uh, be it uh, Haiti or even not the Caribbean people from Mexico or wherever they happen to be coming from if they are darker, where it's, oh, no, get back. We got to put a wall up and send you back immediately, whereas 
these individuals who came from uh, Cuba where they were lighter, they could come here. A lot of them are in Florida now, could be classified as white, could practice racism, white supremacy, which they had been doing in Cuba all the time, and they were welcomed with open arms. So uh, it, what you just said, it makes logical sense, and uh, I think some people would submit that they have been uh, doing this for, for decades. This is just a continuation of their same old policy. Um, other folks who uh, dialed in, who had a hand up? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, I'm on. I'm just going to my list because I had a list. Um, so going and just go a little clip by clip. With the clip, I don't know which clip it was, but it said every generation has to recreate democracy. I find this use of democracy to be very much like what Ani talked about, about um, Eurocentric universalism. Everything that is good is always democracy, even though historically democracies have always had some type of supremacist realities, whether you look at ancient Athens or the U.S. itself, just as examples. So I find it very interesting. We always have to be democratic. I think that's just another way to confuse people. And also, I didn't like the idea that every generation is recreating democracy. White supremacy has always existed. We've just seen different waves or forms of counter-racist movements. So I find it very deceptive to say, oh, we've had a good period then a bad period. No, it's always been white supremacists. And then the clip with the Gurley, talking about the Gurley case, and I think it's, the, what I find this case, very significant about this case, and I think it's very relevant to issues that happen in Canada, because I'd like to emphasize that blacks are probably, numerically speaking, the most smallest group. So we deal with a lot of anti-blackness from non-black persons of color or in your terms, I guess, non-black, non-white peoples. So it shows the way that they can function as a middling group and be rewarded by white supremacy for their anti-blackness. And it really shows how in this side of the world that the aboriginals and blacks are really at the bottom. And then the, I don't know if the school is ECU or ACU, but I found it very on um, the president's rhetoric that, you know, this is very much a Western rhetorical ethic that this incident isn't reflective of the university. It's just one bad apples. And I also don't like whenever they want to interview black students specifically, and I find they do this in Canada as well, they'll always get ones who are clearly confused. They won't ask someone with an informed understanding of racism, white supremacy. So that confused victim is going to say, oh, they're, referring to the police, usually nice and meant to protect us. A person substantively informed with at least a basic historical knowledge knows that's not what police, police are about. And then this, this stupid line about diversity training. This diversity training is just, I think I find it to be a white supremacist refinery tool, a refining tool used to misconstrue what white supremacy is and undermines the fact that white behavior against non-white people, especially black people, is pathological. And then there was that instant with the racial slurs and the children. This, I'm very frustrated with this white supremacist tactic of color blindness. And I remember you mentioned Tim Wise. I always remember your discussion with Tim Wise because I think they were very informative. I, the emphasis, how that white, I believe it was a white woman, who emphasized, well, you know, there's going to be some anti-racist white people. It just reminds me of how they try to deceive us by saying that, you know, there's anti-racism, so that stops them from being race, racist. That reminds me of how Tim Wise could not answer Justice's basic question when you had him on back then. 
and it's just funny how this has become more prevalent now. Like I, I'm just very frustrated because recently I had an argument with one of my relatives, a victim, and she can't seem to understand why I don't feel sorry for Belgium. I have the exact same view and I'm trying to educate um, one of my younger cousins who's a, a victim as well. And it's just very frustrating that we keep falling. And I like what you said about the emotion. We, they really know how to go at black emotions especially black people, because like I said, in Canada, maybe it's because I'm Canadian, I find that, or I'm in Canada, I don't want to say Canadian, but I find that with black people tend to be more trusting of whites than other non-white people, at least from my experience, relatively speaking. And the idea of black people voting, I saw in one clip as a solution to white supremacy, I think that's a ridiculous argument. This is an argument that's often thrown at black people here, that, oh, oh we don't vote. I don't see how how that's going to change anything even if we vote to the maximal efficiency you, you have blacks in the u.s are 13 percent of the population in canada we make up two percent and in ontario the, the province where we're most concentrated we're only seven or eight percent and then sorry we're like four three percent and then in toronto we're like seven percent so we have these small numbers so even logically that doesn't make sense and then now the name change, and I'm glad you brought up Canada. This reminds me of a story. I'm going to try to actually find you the article. I may post on the page. There was actually a children's book writer who mentioned it. I believe it was a black woman. She mentioned that she had an easier time publishing books, children's books, black children's books in the U.S. than Canada, contrary to what she originally thought about Canada, which, which just shows how, again, I always say Canada has the most refined white supremacists. Now, as for name change, I was at a conference last week, and I think I mentioned that before. There's Dr. Nicole McFarlane, and she talked about how names, she was, she's presenting an argument, if I remember her presentation correctly, that she's bringing an argument that names don't actually make that much of a difference. They just, they just make the inevitable faster. It's the in-person, they, they mean, they basically, with the name, you just might not get an in-person interview, but once they see you, they're still not going to hire you anyway. She did some sort of study like that that was really interesting, but that's the gist of it. So either they're going to get you through the name or they're going to get you through in-person, but either way, the result's the same at the end. So I thought that was interesting and very relevant to that. Now, as for the clip from the Kenyan rapper, I really like how he emphasized the need for, Afri for Africans of the diaspora to really connect with the continent. This is something, and I've mentioned this before, I know Rochelle DaCosta, yes, you know, she doesn't like when you mention this, but majority of black, black folks in Canada come from our, our immigrants or first generation born here. And so a lot of us are generally not connected that deep to Canadian in contrast from black folks in America. And I see a lot of inter-ethnic tension between Jamaicans and Africans from the continent, specifically Nigerians. There tends to be a lot of tensions. So I really appreciate what he said because I think that this relationship between Blacks in the Caribbean, Blacks in the continent of the Americas, Blacks in Africa, I think because I think that that's a key to liberating Black people from, from white supremacy. And I think that is the ultimate Black self-respect is when we respect Black people worldwide. So I like that he emphasized that. And those are my comments. I try to be concise as possible, and I'm, I'm done. Right on, right on. Other folks have uh, comments that we haven't heard from? Feel free. 
Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. I was having trouble with with my actual, with my mute button actually. Um, greetings to you, Gus, and um, and to all the callers and the listeners. And um, I just want to say your DJ skills were pretty exemplary with the trial court quest uh, uh, spins that you were putting down, and I really appreciate that. Um, they came out in the in literally. I I was in high school at that time, so they carry big memories for me throughout uh, my childhood. And um, I wanted to speak first to Albert Woodfox in the Angola Three, and I just wanted to say to they just deserve maximum respect, and it was just incredible to hear him still after being released from prison, um, still maintain his dedication to Black liberation. So I just wanted to give him just give him maximum respect and love to all three of them and to all of the Black Panthers. Um, I found it telling in the clip with uh, about Peter Liang that uh, his name was D.A. Thompson. He had said that when a life is taken, there has to be an accounting for that life. And um, that he felt that even though they did not imprison Mr. Liang, that uh, he still needed to be held accountable by losing his job. And I just feel like he, this, uh, this situation white people are using as really an scapegoat because as soon as he said that, I thought, thought about um, Anthony Baez, uh, Sean Bell, Amadou Diallo, Abner Louima. Um, these were all situations where Abner Louima survived, but the other three did not. And there was no accounting for those lives. And all of the people who did the killings were white people in those cases for the most part. Um, I believe with uh, Sean Bell, there was a couple of non-white officers involved in that one. But um, it's really funny how their rhetorical ethic comes up in that situation. So um, essentially they're going to go after this Chinese officer in a way that they've never gone after any white officers who perpetrate these same um, heinous killings against black people. Um, also, I agree with you in reference to the Donald Trump event. It, it seems like just, it's, it's just, like I said, it's like looking at a lynching. It's, it's a staged lynching, um, non-fatal lynching. And this is just telling white people everywhere, you know, it's okay to go out and physically assault a black person or go out and, you know, kill them. I say George Zimmerman, George Zimmerman them, basically murder them. And it's okay um, because this is the way that we're, this is what we're going back to is overt racism, white supremacy, where we're going to put these niggas in their place. Place. And um, these Trump rallies and the events that take place are basically harbingers of what's to come as far as public, what the public will be doing, white people in the general uh, public. And um, also, I found, I like the, the clip that you had played, uh, I think it was one of the black female callers who talked about um, being on juries and she had talked about voting. And to me, that clip you played just really proved that the, the game is completely rigged in the sense that um, they don't want black people uh, be, be, being anywhere near a jury because they're afraid that the black, pe pe black people they make millions of dollars off of convicting every year might not get convicted if they have black people on those juries. And then as reference to voting, um, I just say if you're talking about the presidency, I think that is just complete nonsense simply because of the Electoral College. Um, it's not the citizens who put the president in the office. It's the Electoral College that does so. So as far as that, I disagree. But when you spoke, I believe it was uh, last week or a few days ago, you discussed um, talking about local politics, and I agree with you on that. Definitely voting and, and getting, getting involved in local politics can, can have an effect on the daily reality of people who live in those communities. When you're speaking about the presidential election, not. Not at all. And I, I don't even waste my time with that. Um, also, there was a couple of things that happened this week that I wanted to speak about as well. Um, 
Gus, did you get the clip about the uh, Filipino devotee who had himself cru- crucified um, for peace in Belgium and Europe in general? Uh, no. Let me check my email again. Okay, because I sent you an um, email about with a uh, link to an article about this Filipino guy who had himself, literally, they nailed him to a cross. Um, it's a whole event that they go through in the Philippines where different devotees, will one will play Christ himself, the other two will play the two thieves, and they actually um, put nails through their hands and, and, you know, put them up for, I guess, a set period of time and go through this whole ritualistic uh, sacrifice of these Jesus and these two people. And um, I just found it so crazy that you have this non-white person who has been so indoctrinated with white supremacy that he felt the need to uh, literally crucify himself for Belgium. And I feel just like you do. I thought immediately of Patrice Lumumba. And I just said, to, I said it to my wife. I said, if there was no such thing as white supremacy, Belgium wouldn't have happened. I said, pretty much everything, every problem that we have has to do with white supremacy. So no, I don't feel a thing. Um, I was like, and I think about it as, hey, it's, it's warfare. And, you know, they, they, they're, they're doing things that are warranting these people coming to their country, doing what they're doing there as far as blowing themselves up. And hey, whatever happens, happens. This is what they set into motion when they decided to go around the world and terrorize people and basically kill non-white people and commit genocide against non-white people. So, you know, it's what it is as far as that's concerned. Also, um, there was uh, recently in New Jersey, they're looking to make a law where they can fine you for walking while texting. And I just find it so incredible that as a child, the first thing you learn when you're, you know, when you're of the age where your parents will let you cross the street is to look both ways and to pay attention. But yet you have grown people who have been so mesmerized by these stupid devices, these phones, cell phones and tablets that they can't even pay attention when walking the streets. And I remember um, two incidences when I used to work in uh, in uh, Union, New Jersey. One, a person was walking while texting and walked into oncoming traffic, was hit about six different times and killed just simply because they would not pay attention while crossing the street. And then someone else was doing the same thing, walking while texting, fell into a manhole cover and died. And it's just like, where, where does common sense kick in? And it took me right to Dr. Wilson when um, she had an episode on the cows where she discussed um, not looking at those small devices and small screens because it narrows your frame of reference and your field of vision. And it also does the same thing psychologically. You start to um, become pigeonholed into narrow-minded ways of thinking rather than having a broader scope so that you can get a better understanding of the system of white, white supremacy and how to counter that system. So again, um, it just proves again that anything that white people do create, what they call technology is just ways of taking our attention away from the bigger issues and as, as, as well narrowing our field of perception where we become more accepting of the mistreatment of white people and the genocide against our people that we bear witness to every day. And um, thank you very much, and I'll mute my line. For sure. Uh, other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from, uh, do you have commentary? I'm hurt. Yes, sir. If you could speak up, Thomas, in New York. Absolutely. Is this better? Yes, sir. Is this better? Yes, okay. Um, good evening to all. Um, good evening, Gus. Um, the lady caller, she um, mentioned the classification that the so-called Hispanic Latinos get and how they can play in both boxes, I guess. Um, but also another group who can do the same thing are the um, so-called Arabs, um, or as they call them these days, the Islamic Jihadist terrorists. And um, they can, um, I had a teacher who was Egyptian who swore to me Egypt was not in Africa, However, bragged about being able to be an African-American and go to college for free. So, um, you know, they could play in both boxes as well. 
Um, as for the Canadian caller about the books in Canada, I know a Moorish lecturer, a brother who's a Moor, and he was going to Canada to do a lecture, and um, he was stopped at the border, and he had his books confiscated. They say he could not enter Canada with the books. He was using as the reference points to prove, I guess, whatever he was going to say. So they're very strict on um, the information that the black people can get there. Um, lastly, on um, Marion Curry, um, from what you was just saying, lastly, on um, Marion Curry, um, I just want everyone to remember that the Congress stood up and cheered when they shot her, and um, along with them was the National Black Congress as well. Um, and Gus, um, I wasn't giving you contention with the Trump rally. I was just, you know, informing you about the lady with the KKK mask and um, saying some of the reports that I had heard that was contrary to the way they were presented it because they definitely wasn't presenting the whole picture. Um, that's what I was just trying to point out. But uh, I do watch all his rallies um, as reference points, and um, especially the YouTube videos posted during the rallies, and I listen to what the supporters say entering the rally. And I have seen an uptake in the um, violent behavior of the protesters against the people going to his rallies, but um, they still his his people are still just utterly racist. So you know, it's just it's just entertainment to me. Um, and it's great case study on just how these people think. A lot of people, as these videos got out, I'm surprised a lot of people aren't getting fired or transferred uh, from some of the things that they're saying. Um, in these videos, um, Trial Court Quest, classic East Coast hip hop music. Um, uh, I think Q-Tip was more of the voice in the beast, but Fife was the lyricist. And I loved the music they made. Um, it was a big part of me growing up. Um, and they came in, how they sort of formulate within the context of white supremacy was they came during the time when hip hop was making this transition into the corporate, more gangsterized, more um, street-influenced, um, negative mode that it's on kind of now. Um, and um, they were still making songs that were positive about unity, about brotherhood and sisterhood. And I thought that it was um, great that they didn't come out promoting the gangs and the violence and um, so much of the calling the women out their names and things of that nature. They kept it pretty much consistent and still were cool doing it. And um, you got to respect them, and I hate to see them go. Um you know, I've been listening to this show for a long time, and hopefully, um, Gus, you could tell me. I can only remember three times where we got, like, a justice verdict, and it was like, you know, but they all had, like, kind of a butt in them. Like, I remember Jordan Davis the second time around, you know, but the first time, you know, we, we know what happened there. And post school with the half justice, 18 out of 36 counts, but he did get 260 years but we don't know if he's in jail or not. The only case that I just remember is just coming out like we got it the first time was Magnesia um, McBride. Um, Wafer got 17 years for shooting her. However, the judge did cry um, for him and talk about how hard it was for her to sentence him to the 17 years. But um, Peter Liang, I mean, I, to me, this whole thing is just utterly ridiculous. And then you look at the position that Kim Thompson's in. He's a prosecutor in Brooklyn where God knows how many cases they have open that he needs these cops to testify for him in so he could close them. And I'm sure he had a lot of pressure put on him as well. I mean, could you imagine, you know, you got probably million-dollar drug cases, 
and the cops are saying, hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm starting to forget what, what happened that day and, you know, putting that type of pressure on him. But it's just utterly ridiculous. Um, the whole thing uh, was just um, New York One did a report, nothing to do with this at all. They were just talking about how billions of dollars was given to the city uh, for um, fixing up the project buildings all throughout the city that were federally funded. They get billions of dollars every year from the federal government and how um, you still have buildings with lead paint. It was all the problems. And one of the biggest things was all the buildings without lights and the staircases, which was a huge contribution to this man's death. The whole system should be indicted for what happened to him, but this cop definitely should not get off for the fact that he um, did the, sat there and let that girlfriend um, do CPR instead of him doing it himself. He called the union rep. To me, that was recklessness, and you should not get off of that. Also, he went to the projects this week um, and apologized in person to the, the girlfriend, which I thought was just tacky. Um, Rosie the Riveter, it sounds like the concept where they came up with the concept for affirmative action, you know, uh, because like the lady was saying, um, blacks are usually the last groups to benefit from affirmative action, um, way behind white women, of course. Um, you know, the postal worker, um, that same type of situation happened to me. I live on a street where cop precincts were on the corner. I was crossing the street with my twins. They were babies in a stroller. I had my four-year-old daughter also. She was holding on to the other side of the stroller, and a cop not looking, backing into a space he wasn't supposed to be backing into. Then the crosswalk almost hits us, and then I scream, and he realizes what he's doing. But instead of him just, you know, apologizing, he gets out, he gets nasty, and um, it turned into a verbal altercation that could have went much worse. Um, thank God it didn't. But um, that was some time ago. Lastly, um, Belgium. Um, let's not forget Belgium. It's just a little bigger than Hawaii. It's nothing. It's a little nothing in the world. But yet they controlled the Congo, the most abundant resource land in the, probably the whole world. Um, it's where rubber comes from. You know, no Michelin, no Goodyear, no rubber made if it's no Congo. Um, and... To see the brutal manipulation, um, I mean, the brutal um, mutilation of the people cutting their hands off. I mean, it, it, it was just as tacky as our slavery. Um, I think our slavery, of course, was worse, but, you know, I'm not from there. But um, they just tacky. And I had a lot of pushback from family members because I said, good for the Belgium. And, oh, no, no. So I just texted them pictures of black people with their hands cut off until they got what I was saying. And um, it opened up a conversation. And at the end of it, most of them were like, yeah, good for the Belgium as well. And I'll meet my mom. Can I, I Derek? Yes, sir. Yes, greetings, everyone. Uh, first and foremost, I would like to uh, commend and, and uh, be very, very thankful to the Angola Three. Uh, as you all know on how Dr. Welsing would uh, keep illustrating uh, the word self-respect, uh, their, their picture should be next to that meaning on how those three black males persevered, kept their focus 
the most insurmountable levels of terror over it, it, it's just almost hard to 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 factor in on how they were able to do it other than they just had supreme faith and the reality of the system of racial white supremacy one day will be destroyed and replaced with a system of justice so i mean i i i i, I just can't I just can't fully, fully uh, uh, commend those three fellows on what they uh, have done as an example for us in this war. Uh, prior to the program coming on, uh, as we all know, this is one of those uh, uh, white supremacists uh, saturated uh, holiday uh, environments that we're under. And uh, I notice every year uh, this uh, movie that comes on every year that really doesn't have anything to do with Easter, uh, if you ask me. But nevertheless, it comes on almost every year during this time. It's called The Ten Commandments, uh, which was put on by white people who call themselves Jews. And uh, I found it very interesting on the racism that uh, was sat that this movie was saturated with. Uh, the only good part about it was uh, uh, the uh, right, well, right at the beginning of the, of the, uh, of the movie, uh, it shows uh, all, well, all the Egyptians for the most part, were white people who had heavy makeup on to tan themselves uh, or tan themselves to appear to be not white. Uh, and, uh, and there were some non-white black people in the movie, but they primarily were only portrayed as uh, very low-level workers within that entire four-some-odd-hour movie. Uh, there was one great part, one good part, where the the very lovely uh, actress, her last name was Brown, uh, that represented uh, uh, a princess, uh, Ethiopian princess. Uh, that uh, if if anybody would take a look at it, they would know what I'm talking about on how very beautiful this heavily melanated non-white black female was in this in this movie next to Woodrow Strode, who we all know was one of the first uh, uh, NFL football players. Uh, and uh, but uh, those are just that's just some something that I noticed today. And uh, and this was one of the most accoladed movies of all time. Uh, <laughs> and, and it just saturated. It's typical of white people on how it's just saturated with racism. Uh, uh, through the movie, uh, if someone was really sincere about about uh, 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 Christianity or religion, it would it would thoroughly just just confuse their minds to uh, to look at a movie like this. Uh, and but it, it's you know it's typical of what white people do. Uh, so that that was just my observations. And uh, thank you for listening. For sure. 
the Ten Commandments, the legend Charlton Heston. That was uh, one of his big films. Uh, Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston. Uh, any folks that we have not heard from uh, have commentary they want to get in? Feel free. Uh, hello, sir. Hello, can I be heard? Uh, we'll take Puff and then we'll get everybody. Oh. Yeah. Let her go first. Greetings, M1. Gre- sorry about that. Uh, greetings, no, no, everybody. Don't be sorry. <laughs> greetings, everybody. This is uh, Puff. I have a quick question. Uh, but before I get to the quick, quick question, I want to give big ups and shout outs to Witty Stroll. Uh, the the famous uh, actor that uh, the Colin Florida just mentioned. He he's a he's a good guy. Big up to him. Um, but before I ask my question, okay, I want to ask a question to Gus and the Colin New York. Uh, quick question: Why is it that okay about Donald Trump and we see the you know the the outcome of his rallies you know and everything on on TV. But before this all started, when it was announced that Trump was going to run for a president, it was a big, it was a big animosity in the in the uh, in the non-white community, black, Hispanic, everybody community. And I just wonder why that is. Like why it was it started in New York City. Just the the people was just they were they were they were protesting outside of uh, Dave Letterman's studio. I think when he was supposed to be a guest or something it was just and i just wonder why and can y'all answer that question for me please please i think because um the, the bertha it's uh with the whole last eight years of him saying that obama is not an american citizen and um black people saying that's definitely a racist uh thing to say i think that's what kind of um got a lot of like got him a lot of bad attention from black people Agreed. I think uh, I think a lot of uh, I think he's one of the small number of white people. I said that when the term for that, he's in that group of s- the small number of white people. Uh, Paula Dean, Donald Sterling, that even a lot of white people are like, oh, yeah, Donald Sterling is racist. Uh, and so a lot of black people will easily identify him as racist and feel like, hey, we should do something about it. It's an outrage that this guy is going to run for president. Plus, the as uh, Colin New York just said, the comments that he's made about President Obama, I think a lot of people have strong, uh, a lot of black people, a lot of non-white people have strong emotional attachments to President uh, Obama as well. Hmm. All right. Thank you for answering my question. Uh, okay. Hello? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. We can also add uh, just really we can also add his him being a a major a major figure in helping to frame the young man, the young brothers for the rape of the Central Park Jogger with his uh, pro death penalty ad for those framed young brothers. And a lot of people have not forgotten that. Is at that moment when I said I will not support anything Trump. And plus various comments he has made, you know, about 
like I said, about Mexicans. Even things like how Mexican directors are winning Oscars is a, a invasion of this country. No such comments are made when directors from Italy, France, England, Australia. So there's just a litany. But for me, the most important was how he helped send innocent black people to prison. The Central Park Gaga case. Now, as for Kai Gurley, this this letter by D.A. Thompson not to, that he shouldn't get prison time. One of the things I have always said from the moment I heard of this case until now is the total disregard of Akai Gurley's life. It's just like, okay, it happened, but so what? It's insignificant. And this is just a continuation of that. You know, now I normally don't agree with Pat Lynch. He's a New York Union police rep. I believe he practices racism seriously. But like he said, if you weren't going to imprison the man, why, why go to a trial? I mean... This is this is just another attempt to just another attempt to say why why should he why should someone have to go to jail for killing someone black? That's really all this is and and as I said, the total disregard of his life, I mean just that, the the Cavalier report that was on the NCR by the by those two hosts. I mean, basically, no. I mean, basically, hardly any talk about him being unjustly killed, and and somehow. That and somehow that conviction without prison time sends a message. You know, we heard it. We heard it from Liang himself. We heard it from John Liu, the thousands of Asian protesters. And and now DA Thompson. And again. If the reverse happened and he came up with no prison time, would that be tolerated? We all know that answer. You know, that, that's just all I have to say, but just the total disregard of this man's life. Hopefully the judge will override him and and give him the maximum term he's supposed to get. 
Thanks. For sure. Uh, any other folks that we have not heard from, if we have not heard from you? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, you talking to me? Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, uh, first time call, a long time listener. Um, I've been listening to this show for at least three years, and um, I'm an associate. I say that with intent because um, I'm not a fan. I just do agree that there's a system of racism, and um, it's not tangible, but we all feel it affects us. I've been studying um, history for like the last 11 years. I minored in it. I majored in psychology, and I have a master's in business, and I'm 29 years old. Um, and it's just like real difficult now because it isolates you from the general public, the general population. Um, well, I'm nervous. <laughs> I like like a lot of um, the callers. Um, I, I spend a lot of time on YouTube listening to um, people like Dr. Amos Wilson and um, and I first found out about the college by listening to Millie Fuller. And and I, I, I must admit, the first time I heard him, it was it, it was like, you know, <laughs> I laughed because his, his delivery, you know, it, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of dry humor. And um, Dr. Millie Fuller was, was so accurate. And um, this show brings me great um, joy and great pain because great great joy because it's um it's proof that i'm not crazy great pain because it's proof that i'm not crazy <laughs> so um um i'm going to continue listen and I'll, I'll mute myself right now grand to hear first time listener that is outstanding i will say really quick i hear that uh if i had i won't even give the metaphor i hear that a lot <laughs> i mean i hear that a lot where people say that this broadcast uh solidifies for them that they are not crazy and uh sometimes i snicker to myself and say it could just be that you have found another crazy person uh, and are uh, enjoying hearing some other people that are equally crazy uh, and just uh rolling along with the uh with the craziness that could also be case, but, yeah uh, <laughs> yeah but if you, you do you do see, well sometimes i do feel like it you know when i when i'm when i'm talking to uh, people about it it's like oh lord this is this he he goes with this this negative but i mean this show is well it, it makes me look at it allows me to look at the news from an objective point of view uh it's no longer i'm no longer confused about it you know and i i think it's 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 a tragedy that you know i had been going to school for so long without you know learning about African American studies and until I got to college, you know, it, it, I think it's just like, it's, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a crime that we don't know about this at an early age. Uh, I'll mute myself. All part of the system. Uh, that is the plan. Uh, good to hear from you. Be heard? Uh, yes, sir. We can hear you. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. We can hear you. Yes. Uh, from, uh, the ones I'm young too, 26. And uh, I'm not even repeat myself because the first just called before me 
just say everything I have to say, pretty much. But, yeah, like, this show has been, like, you know, an eye-opener that I'm not the only crazy person in this world, you know. And that even with this uh, regular broadcast, I see that most white people really are, like, racist. Even the so-called good white people, like the, the Bernie Sanders supporters, stuff like that, because they believe that white people will change. And I'm under the conclusion that white people will never change because they never want to give up their power for white supremacy because it's been so good to them for so long. So why would they give it up? So to your, uh, I heard you before on previous broadcasts saying that, uh, if uh, this thing cannot, if, if we cannot get justice, why would we have this show? And I feel like we would never get justice because it's how the system was designed to us never to get justice. But I think this uh, program is uh, beneficial to us because at least, it's, at least it teaches us something and help us cope with it, with the codification and everything that we can deal with it and learn how to walk through it. Because these white people these days, especially to me living in the South, will never, ever give up their white supremacy because it's it's not it's not uh uh normal for them. I mean, they would never give up this thing because it's so great for them and so beneficial for them. They would never give up this thing, and like even for New Orleans, like me living in the Lower Night Ward, where it's most famous in New Orleans. These white people are buying up properties left and right for pennies on a dollar, and they will eventually reap the reward because there there have been a street cars in this area to where it goes from the lower ninth ward to the business district to where other white people will uh, come closer and start buying these areas. These areas will be a lot of money. But since our white people are so poor, we'll sell it for pennies on the dollar because there's more money than we ever seen. And once it starts, once the street cars are done, they will make 10 times as much of what they bought it for. And our people will never reap the benefits because justification is so heavy down here and our people are so uneducated that we will never know. And uh, I'll leave my line to have uh, everybody talk ongoing damage from uh, Hurricane Katrina and the program of white supremacy that followed. Uh, the Anybody else that we missed and have not heard from, if you dialed in, have a hand up and we haven't heard from you, uh, you should speak now. Yes, sir, Gus. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, this is Steve down in Texas. Um, I came in a little bit late, so I have a brief comment. Um, one, I just wanted to, well, First of all, I do want to agree with the previous two callers. Like, uh, I had wanted to get a chance to tell you thank you and for all the guests that you have on because I think I had called in, like, maybe a couple weeks ago. I've just been a little busy and I haven't been able to get back in. But this this show saved my brain because I told you I had moved from down south and I went up to Canada, Alberta, and I was working in the oil field up there. Never had done any kind of oil field work before. 
But uh, I ended up uh, going back to school, got my crane ticket, and I was uh, working in the oil field, Fort McMurray. I'm sure you guys may have heard any stuff about that on the news. And um, I found your program <laughs> listening to uh, YouTube, and it was an episode of Mr. Fuller. And he gave his number on the program. So I ended up giving him a call, and I spent about 30 minutes on the phone with him. But I felt like he talked me down off of a ledge because I, I was going absolutely insane up there with the racism that I was experiencing up in uh, Canada. I, I had never experienced anything like that before. Uh, but on another note, um, as far as uh, the Belgium attacks, because I came in late, but I did want to make a comment about this, and I don't know if any of the callers had ever done any research, but um, if you've ever seen anything about Operation Gladio uh, in Europe, but they're like leftover terrorism networks, that these uh, white supremacists have been using since World War II to uh, keep these terror attacks going, you know, I guess the Paris bombings and now this, but it's just, it just shows their deception. They keep it going, whether or not, whether you want it to, whether we want it or not, because they rule by fear. They keep everybody afraid and they keep white people like stirred up because uh, up up to these attacks, there was a avalanche of like, um, you know, uh, reports coming out of Europe saying, uh, you know, we're being invaded, you know, I guess like how Mr. Fuller would say the dark invaders, um, it was just coming left and right. And then it culminates in this bombing, you know, it's no coincidence. So, um, and also I find it quite, uh, interesting that anytime these terrorist attacks go off, they never hit any high value targets, you know, it's always civilians. Uh, they never, you, you don't ever hear about like a white prime minister or white president or somebody getting, you know, bombed. It's always just average people. But um, that's all I want to say, and um, I'll mute my mind. But once again, I want to thank you for the information. Like, it's been invaluable because it is that feeling that once you do come across this program or any serious study of racism, white supremacy, you you feel like you've been cheated most of your life. You know, it really had me upset for a long time. I felt like, you know, where was this when I was growing up? Because, you know, you felt like you would have made better decisions. You could have helped, you know, people better to understand the world in which we live. You, you just feel like you've been going blind most of your life. And I actually helped my wife out. She's Ethiopian. She had moved to Canada when she was like two after Ethiopia fell apart during, with the dirge and, you know, during the 80s with that whole famine campaign that you saw on TV with the We Are the World. You know, her family came out of that. But uh, she she feels the same way too, and um, I'll say thanks for her on her behalf too as well. But uh, I'll mute my line. Thank you. Right on, Maddie. Oh, her two female callers. Uh, I guess we'll get our female caller in New York, and then we'll go to Ohio. Thank you, Gus. Uh, I just wanted to um, comment on. Um, well, I have a workplace racism comment. I'll save for later. But I just sent you. Um, an email because um, I know that there was some discussion about Donald Trump and um, all of the antics that goes on at his um, quote unquote um, rallies. Um, I just sent you an article on his father being arrested in New York City in Queens in 1927 uh, following a Klan rally. Um, there, it, this rally involves some sort of uh, involved the KKK and some sort of fascist Italians or something like that. Anyway, just white folks fighting white folks. You know, that's what they do. That's how they get down. But anyway, um, it 
not that we need to have an explanation or rationalize uh, Donald Trump's racism, but uh, I think that that article is a good example of his culture and how he's grown up. He's grown up in violence. He's grown up in racism. He's grown up in um, strategizing, um, racist strategizing. And I totally agree with you, Gus. I never went for none of this um, thing, the stuff that goes on at his rallies. I always saw it as a, a show. And I think that what he, um, I think that somebody recently referred to it as a show rather than calling it um, a campaign rally. They, they uh, made a, um, uh, they, they referred to it as a show. And that's what they are, they're shows. So um, I kind of saw through that right away. And um, thank you for the, um, Tribute to Fife, uh, huge loss. Uh, uh, that sounds the way he raps his voice and his um, his uh, personality uh, around those beats. Uh, we can, we're very we're not going to see anything like that again. And um, uh, thank you for giving that short tribute. And I'll mute my line until we have um, workplace racism. Thanks. Sure. Uh, caller in Ohio. Okay. Um, hello, Gus, to you and to um, all the call, other callers and listeners. Um, hope you guys are having a great day on the plantation, wherever you're at, as best as you can have a great day. First thing I want to say, Gus, is um, I got an opportunity. Unfortunately, I missed your program the day that it happened when you had Lauren Crest Love on the show. Every time I would say Dr. Wilson's sister, but she does have a name. And um, so I was at work, and I was listening to it, and I just want to thank you for the introduction that you put on that show. And I do think that's a show I heard it all, which is uh, Dr. Welsing talking about her institute in the background music, uh, Curtis Mayfield, Choice of Colors. And I tell you, I took that thing on first, and I started listening to it, and I, I ended up backing it up. Three times, I listened to it like four times before I finally listened to the show. And I just thought it was just so, it was just a beautiful tribute to uh, Dr. Wilson. So I wanted to thank you for that. And just a few things off your uh, clips tonight. The, the, the police officer in New York, Lane, or Lane, whatever his name is, Lane, um, I just don't, I don't have anything for him. I, you know, listening to that clip and Basically, what I'm hearing, the person that was talking is basically saying that, well, yeah, Mr. Lying, he's ruined his own life, you know, and, oh, he, it wasn't malice towards uh, Makai Gurley, but, you know, we just don't think that he should have to do jail time. And, you know, and I'm just like, well, you were insubordinate because from what I remember reading, they were told not to go into the building, but they went in the building anyway right there, so that's insubordination right there. And then we get into all the other stuff. He shoots them, you know, calls the union rep. I think it was about like eight to ten minutes before any kind of uh, first aid, you know, was given. So, it, it, you know, I'm just like, uh-uh. And I, you know, you have this feeling that, you know, he, he this is a black man he killed. Well, it wasn't malice, but he shouldn't have to spend time in jail because he killed this nigger. And I ain't to say it like that. But that is really how I'm feeling. And now it's almost kind of like, you know, let's everybody get it on here. And I didn't tell you until like the guy, Peter Lyang, you know, that, yeah, you know, I did this, but, you know, I, I won't have to worry about it. I want to go to jail. See what they do to the white police officers. So that won't happen to me. And um, unfortunately, you know, and I think on one of your shows earlier, uh, within the last month or so, 
you did a piece on this, I guess, when he was at trial. And, um, oh, shoot. <laughs> oh, we were talking about the union people. Like, the unions, his police union didn't show up for him. I think a couple of guys come in, didn't have suits on or anything. You know, and it's just like they threw him up under the bus. You know, then they had this big, you know, next thing, you know, he has this big uh, rally where all these, you know, Asians are out there basically, you know, um, trying to, you know, protest for him, but then also trying to say, you know, we really, uh, you know, this is a sad incident, but he really shouldn't go to jail. And then almost insist I'm here to say, I should be treated like you treat these white police officers. I, that's that's how I, I felt about when I when I heard that, um, you know, that clip back there. Because um, that, to me, it just seemed like that's just exactly what you're saying. You know, you know I really shouldn't have to go to jail. These white police officers, are killing these black men. And then I even almost think that there's, when I hear this, like, you know, when you hear what's not being said, it's almost like saying that these white police officers are killing these guys, you know, illegally. You know, there's something wrong with what they're doing, but they're not being held accountable to it. So, you know, it's kind of like, well, why should I have to be held accountable? It was an accident. I didn't feel malice towards this guy. It was just an accident. So, I should be able to have my wrist slapped and sent home for five years and given them, um, I think it was some community service, some period of community service they want to give them. And I kept thinking about that. I said, if he gets the community service, chances are they're going to send him to some, somewhere to work with black people, you know, because that's how they do. Remember Ronald Reagan's man, Deaver, got arrested. And when, they, uh, when he had to come up for probation, they sent them to some black area in, in D.C., you know, to work with some black people. And I'm thinking that, you know, when he was with the president, he wouldn't have looked that way. And now it's like, now he's a criminal, so I can go down here and work with these people now. So that, that's how um, I, I kind of feel about that. Um, in terms of the rapper, you know, I I can't say that, that I have heard this, this guy's music or heard, you know, the, the guy's group that he was with. But, you know, it was a nice, like you say, tribute that you gave to him. You know, it's sad, you know, 45 years of, uh, 45 years of age is really a young age um, to be seen, you know, unfortunately. And I noticed it seemed like some rappers, you know, they die at such young ages. And um, so I just want to thank you for that, um, that uh, tribute that you gave to them. One other thing I want to say, too, is about this. Um, I mean, I don't know what we, what we could do. But it just seemed like to me it should be some kind of urgency that we tell our people to open up their minds. This admission from John Ehrlichman of the Nixon administration about uh, what, the war, what they call the war on drugs is what I call the war on blacks and how the admission that, yeah, you know, we did this. And I just think it kind of strange that, well, I know the NAACP is out there early, it's just like no kind of um, statement um, and I'm, I mean, I don't know what it would do, but it just still seems like to me it just should warrant a statement and that, you know, for black people that you have to, you know, we need to open up our eyes. I mean, this was a sitting president who sat with his inner circle and they came up with a plan to to just decimate the black community. And I think the hippies were thrown in. I don't necessarily know that they didn't take the hippies. I just think they threw that in at the time. Because if somebody would say, oh, you're doing something to black people, they would like, no, 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 it's not just black people. You know, we got the hippies and left the two. You know, and I, I just don't believe that. And I, I was thinking about this today, and I, I don't even know if our community, if we as a people, would ever recover from what, what started at, in the White House. And it just lends to my belief that, 
there is nothing that has that go on with black people in this country that does not come from the highest. And if the White House would represent the highest, you know, seat in government, uh, that comes from the highest in our government in terms of death, destruction, and damnation to the black community. And I just one more point, and then I'm out. The gentleman that just spoke, uh, I'm sorry, it was a lady right before me. I'm sorry. But the gentleman that spoke before her, and he talked about basically like his mind opening up. And I just, you know, want to say to you, thank you, too, because before I came across the cows, you know, how you know that, you know white folks are doing stuff, but you just, you know, and it's just it. And once I started listening to the cows, then I really began to learn a lot about, well, myself, you know, as a black person, but also just, you know, just how, I mean, just how white people are. And, I, you know, I think about people, you know, sometimes on Facebook, you, people who want to educate white people, and I just feel like, for me, it's just like a waste of time because it, it just, whatever you teach me, it just doesn't stick. They're just, they're just going to be themselves. And the other day I was talking to a friend about it, and I'll say this and I'll finish and I was thinking, like, the fashion industry. And, you know, you have, like, two fashion seasons every year. And every fashion season, you have models like Naomi Campbell or Beth Ann Hardison, who she's not a model now. And, you know, that's Kadeem Hardison's mom. Who every fashion season, they have got to complain to the fashion directors, the fashion designers about the lack of black models. Now, how is it that two fashion seasons each year, and every season, I got to complain to you about the same thing. So it's just that white people, you know, they don't care. They're going to give lip service, and they'll do one little bit at that time that you talk to them, and then they go back. It's kind of like the Confederate flag in these days, and now how they over and out to take them down, but now it's like they're stopping. You know, now they're going to stop taking down the stuff. You know, not, not that I'm saying that's the right thing or wrong thing, but you know, oh, we did that then, but now, oh, no, that stops now. So I, I just thank you because this show really has opened up my mind and has opened up my mind to who those people are. And with that, thank you. I'll meet myself. Right on. Mabin, uh, one more person before we get to workplace racism, because I saw they did have their hand up. The caller at uh, last four digits, 2842-2842. Do you have uh, concise comments you wanted to get in before we get to workplace racism? Yes, I do. Greetings, guys. Greetings to you, guys, and to all the callers and all of the listeners. Basically, I would like to say once again, thank you for this program. Um, it is one of the most comprehensive programs and podcasts that I listen to on a weekly, sometimes daily basis. That has really helped me to understand racism, white supremacy in the in its context, and introducing me more to Neely Fuller's work and to Dr. Francis Cresswell saying, and um, and it's just been really eye-opening to understand, to be able to be clearly seeing multiple events globally, nationally, domestically, in my own neighborhood that directly affect black people in the context of racism, white supremacy. And uh, with Belgium, I found, I I just couldn't find anything in my heart, although all throughout the media and television, they were showing images of Belgian people as victims and knowing, having read previously uh, Leopold's ghost, um, I had a hard time trying to find any sympathy in my heart for 
for people in Belgium. Um, I just wanted to ask something that I thought was curious that I only saw mentioned once, and I read an article today on Facebook, a link that was on Facebook about um, President Obama going to Cuba, and that the United States has asked that Asada Shakur be extradited back to the United States, and that the president of Cuba denied that. And I've been looking for more articles, and I just wanted to know if anybody knew if that was actually something true, because I'm very skeptical about the United States, President Obama, and going into Cuba and opening up so-called talks, and I'm just very skeptical about that and suspicious. Um, I agree with what many of the callers and you have said about the the staged um, uh, uh, terrorism that happens at many Trump um, uh, at, at most of the the, ha- the meetings that Trump is happening at, um, I find that very. I'm just very suspect of most things now that I see, based on this show, and based on Neely Fuller's work. I have the compensatory code. I've been reading it um, to gain more words, thoughts, and speech and action to counter racism in my daily life. I've been letting people listen to the show. I've been sending the link to friends and family because um, even with Easter coming up tomorrow or the so-called holiday Easter tomorrow, um, I think a lot of people, I've noticed that many of my black friends have that go to church have forgotten that it's not even a year that Dylan Roof ter- murdered those people in South, South, uh, South Carolina inside their church, walked inside their church and and murdered those nine people. And it seems that many of my friends and family um, go to large churches in New York and in California, and they allow busloads of um, foreign white people, domestic white people, to come into their church and worship with them. And this show, among many things, has let me to continually understand and have patience with my own people because we're all working through this confusion and this victimhood. And I just want to thank you, Gus, and I want to thank all the callers and listeners. Thank you very much. For I'll sure. meet my line. For sure. Uh, we're going to transition to workplace racism. Raj, you should be back with us. Uh, and our female caller who was first uh, dialing in about the situation in Cuba, uh, your line should be open as well if you want to participate in workplace racism. Um, I just wanted to say really quick about you mentioned about Asada Shakur uh, with the Cuba situation um, that I first started hearing that last year. Uh, I would not be surprised mm. if it was brought up again this week since he was there. But uh, when they began all of this last year and talking about changing and having better uh, relations with uh, Cuba, I think Governor Chris Christie, because he's in New Jersey and that's where uh, the shooting incident, uh, Asada Shakur, where she was charged with shooting the uh, enforcement official. It happened in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I think Governor Chris Christie was one of the first people to speak up and say that, you know, this is absurd and we should not have any improved relations. If they are going to be if they are going to be improved relations, then a major condition needs to be that Asada Shakur needs to be handed over uh, in return so that she can be imprisoned and serve out her sentence Mm -hmm. and all that. And there were many other uh, white people who said the exact exact same thing last year uh, that they were totally opposed to this and that didn't be one of the conditions and I did hear uh, that Cuban officials uh, even last year had said that they uh, were not going to hand uh, Asada Shakur over that that was was not something that they were going to be willing to do uh, however I would definitely be mindful and, and remain alert uh, if that 
becomes uh, a main point of emphasis uh, as all of this evolves and as there's increased travel Mm -hmm. between the two areas. I would just be mindful of all of that. I would not be surprised if uh, they try to make a a big to do about all this to say that, hey, we're going to we're going to get her. We should have more access. It would not it would not surprise me at all Um, with that. Thank you. For sure. Thank you. For sure. Uh, With that, we'll go ahead and get to workplace uh, racism. If folks would like to participate, the number to dial 641-715-3640 and the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, Anybody that we didn't hear from, if you have something related to workplace racism, you should speak up first. Uh, If not, uh, any folks who have commentary on workplace racism, feel free to chime in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, just a couple of observations this week. I was uh, sitting in the break room and uh, I-, I told him a story about how one white person was accused of being racist or being a racist because she made a reference to some microwaves. Now, uh, the same white female, she uh, has an obsession with um, going to the tanning salon, and she keeps saying, like, how she needs to get color, things like that. So she's talking to uh, this um, actually same white female that accused of it, I guess in a joking way, and she was saying, Wow, you're gonna be <laughs> if you if you if you keep if you keep going to do this tanning stuff, you're gonna you're gonna match your eyelashes because I guess when you look at people's eyelashes, you know I guess they have a darker hue, and you know this female responded saying, "Well, if I if I did any more tanning, you know I don't want to tan too much, or I'll look like um, she said my name, you know, and I don't know if she thought I heard her or whatever." So I guess, you know, made like some kind of comparison, like, hey, you know, I don't want to get too dark, but, you know, you want to tan, though. So I, I, I thought about Dr. Wilson on uh, that Phil uh, Donahue TV show. And uh, another incident was that I noticed that this, this white guy, he's been going around, like, getting trying to get uh, females to touch on him in certain kind of ways, like, um, Primarily the white one, he would like he would try and get them to scratch his back, and I seen some of the white supervisors, females, uh, you know, go up to his back, start scratching it, but he won't necessarily touch on them himself. And I've noticed that he's been doing this tactic, you know, because I told him to stop touching on my shoulder and stuff like last year sometimes. So, you know, I don't know if he's been trying to do that in front of me. You know, they're trying to do something subliminal, but it's not directly affecting me. But I notice he'll do that, you know, and say stuff like, oh, well, you know, this won't this won't get your boyfriend to beat me up. Well, you know, your husband, you know, just saying stuff like that. And, and he's being very uh, bold about it. Like, you know, nobody can report that. And uh, that was another incident or observation. And, um, 
The next was I heard an, another white male say, like another comment, I guess he was talking about me, or, or another black male, about, um, like, if there's anybody coming in, you know, causing any problems, you know, like how they have uh, the sheriffs and bailiffs out in the front lobby, well, he says, you know, hey, don't worry about it. If, if the person causes any more problems, we'll get, you know who, he said, you know who, to um, we'll sick, you know who on them. So he used that word sick, like, you know, referring to a, um, a dog, you know, like an animal. So we'll, we'll sick them on them. And uh, that was another thing I heard. But this, this last one was very interesting because we, we had like a young black male get uh, gunned down or shot because he had a, uh, a, a fake gun, I guess. And it happened last weekend. And, um, yeah, he, he got fired with 18 shots and, uh, black people's cars and homes were shot through. And this this white male, he had asked me, he says, Hey, do you live on, um, he he, he said the address or whatever. And I was like, no, I don't live over there. And then he says, Oh, well, you know, I heard on the radio that, um, Al Sharpman was going to be coming down here to do a march. And I was like, where you heard that from? He said, oh, on this, uh, on this radio show. Um, I was like, what's his name? And he said something, uh, something rose or something like that. And he said, oh, well, it was a, it was a caller that called up and said this. And then, so, you know, so I'm talking to him about it and he's about to go out of the door. So he says, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my buddies, I'm gonna round up my buddies and we're gonna get some sniper rifles. So then I asked him, I said, so uh, what are you gonna do with them guns? But then he just switches up and he says, oh, well, you know, I, I was just I was just playing, man, I was just playing. So, oh, well, okay. So, you know, he goes about his business. So just for just the fact that he would, um, I guess, so-called joke, about doing harm, I guess, to some black people that would be engaging in protesting. You know, that was uh, very profound. But I expected that from this person. And, yeah, that's that's pretty much all I have this week. Wow. <laughs> that is uh, white people. I've said that consistently when white people are, quote, unquote, joking. Those are the few times when they are being honest, uh, particularly when they're talking about black people. That is when they're being honest. And I do not think he was joking at all. Uh, that's typically been the response uh, when black people are being serious and responding uh, to loss of life or just dealing with racism and saying, hey, we need to get serious and try to solve this problem. Uh, white people say, hey, it's time for us to get our guns. We got uh, niggas to take care of. Uh, I seriously doubt that he was joking uh, and probably just altered his tone when he saw oh, this niggas is being serious uh, and paying attention to what I'm saying. Let me try and switch it up and, and just, you know, that way uh, he won't try and make an issue of this. Uh, if we do have to go out and shoot some Negroes, they can't say that this was some premeditated attack that I was talking about on the workplace. Um, 
folks have any any questions they want to get that touching in the workplace is uh, important too. That's one of the things we talked about a bunch uh, on the program, uh, and I've given my stance on that consistently about you know just being real opposed to any form of uh, touching because that can get serious, particularly if white women are involved. That can get serious in five seconds uh, and can ruin your whole career, and that's come up repeatedly on the program down through the years. Uh, folks had any questions? Uh, they wanted to ask uh, from that caller if you had your own observations or, or your own instances of workplace racism you wanted to share, uh, feel free. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I just wanted to say I found it fascinating. Um, and as soon as he said that joke, it looks like he really realized that he broke the um, refinement and tried to catch himself. And it really speaks to what I said, I think it was last week, and I say it very often, the same white people that we work with that cook us food. If you eat at white establishments who drive buses, who's your doctor or your boss are the same today as the people who were committing genocide against our ancestors 500 years ago. And that just speaks volumes to that because he's a so-called average citizen at an average job talking about sniping Al Sharpton and other uh, black uh, protesters. And these are the people. These are the same people that you ride the bus with, with the lily white blonde hair kid, you know, pushing the stroller and the kids skinning and grinning at you, but thinking you're a monkey. I mean, like, I think that's just a profound example of, you know, just what I've always said. And um, I have my own workplace racism incident as well, but I'll mute my line in case anyone else wanted to question or have a comment um, towards the situation. Thank you. I even think that's revealing just quickly uh, in case other folks want to share or if Roz, if you want to share, it's revealing uh, in terms of white people. I think they just clump all black people together. Uh, and your part, I think you shared before you being down in, in the Florida area where this incident happened with the shooting. And I think he sent me that article as well. I should have probably included that in the news clips today about this, the shooting incident that happened with this young black male. But uh, him in his mind thinking, oh, yeah, all the niggas live together. So you probably live over there where this incident happened uh, as well, even though that was not the case. I think that just shows the racist mindset that they have uh, that just black people are just all lumped in uh, together in terms of that's how he was uh, processing the situation and where you live at. Uh, if no other comments or questions, Ross, if you want to go ahead. Yes, sir. I have a couple of observations. Um, first one, again, is another Donald Trump moment. Um, I had a, a, a member call in for assistance with a claim they had, and um, I had to explain to them, again, what a deductible was and that the payment was applied to a deductible, so she was not happy when she called in. And um, essentially, she said, before the conversation even took off, she said, um, I hate this Affordable Care Act. Ob Obama's full of uh, feces. And um, he's full of so much feces that he's oozing it out of his ears. Vote for Donald Trump. This is before we even got into a conversation. And um, I was talking to my coworker um, because they, they were actually, weirdly enough, because most of this stuff it does not get discussed on the job. So when people do discuss it, my ears perk up. But they had a whole discussion about Donald Trump. And this was a white female. And she was saying how disgusted she was with how popular he is and all of this stuff. And um, I said, she said, one thing I'm glad about is that I haven't had one of those Donald Trump calls. I've heard a couple of people talking about that. I said, well, I've had five of them. 
Um, so she said, really? I said, yeah. I said, actually, just earlier this week, <laughs> I had an incident, and I explained the situation I just told you about. I said, since we've moved, because we just, we just relocated to another building close by to where, where the other building is, and I said, oh, I had three incidents of this Donald Trump stuff at the old building, and I said, two since I got to this new building, including the one this week that I just talked about. And she was like, oh, my gosh, it would really upset me if somebody called in and, 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 and said something like that to me. I, don't, I think I would have to respond to that and I'm just sitting there and I'm and I'm looking at her and I just thought to myself I said the only reason Donald Trump is popular is because he speaks to the white psychopathology in a way that none of the other candidates do he's very overt um he speaks to the climate that America is going towards which is essentially overt racism white supremacy and abuse and and uh, genocide against black people and non-white people so that's why he's popular I just didn't say anything but I just answered her question in my head and kept it moving so that's one incident the second one was um, I brought up earlier that my job is opening a location in Arizona, and a lot of us are under the thought that once they do open that open that location, they're going to basically. Um, this is what I hear. The plan is is to downsize the New York location and basically have this. It's a big building. It's about four times the space that I'm in in New York, in the area of New York, and. Um, on top of that, they said they have like a gym they're building in there and all kinds of stuff. So, and the cost of living is a lot cheaper and they own the space. So they're basically going to downsize the New York uh, team to a specific amount of people and basically offer people jobs in Arizona. And those who can't move to Arizona basically will have to look for another job and they'll just hire more people out there. So, um, there's a guy who I work with who I've also introduced to the show and I've sent him podcasts and stuff. And we've talked about racism, white supremacy. So he's uh, fairly aware of the system. And um, he was saying that of course he cannot move to Arizona and that he had the first, when his first, uh, when this Arizona situation first came up, he had asked his boss, he's um, a trainer on the job. Um, if they were going to, you know, have issues with, with them opening this location, is it going to cause a problem with his job? Because he can't, you know, move to Arizona. So she said, oh, you know, everything's going to be fine. She, this is what she told him a few weeks back. Everything's going to be fine, and, you know, it's not going to affect your job. You'll be good. Don't worry about it. So then he just told me um, yesterday that she came to him and asked him if he would be willing to move to Arizona. <laughs> and he, he, was, he, said, um, he said, I knew this was coming. I said, well, the bottom line is this is how the plantation works. They always come at you in a way in which they deceive you by telling you, oh, everything's fine. It is what it is. And then eventually everything that you know, that you knew in your gut that they lied to you and told you wasn't the truth is exactly what the truth is. So um, he said, well, he's just, he's looking for another situation so he can transition out of that um, in the meantime, but essentially trying to figure out how they're going to navigate this while he's still there. Um, so it just goes to, again to the rhetorical ethics of white people. They'll tell you one thing and then they always do whatever it is they want to do regardless. And um, that's a great example of that. And then the third thing was the same person was talking to me. There's another um, black female on the job who uh, dates a white male and they have been together for, I think maybe like two years or something like that. And, um, he said to me, he said, from the moment she told me he was with, she was with a white male. I am my alarms went off. Like, what are your parents? What are they teaching you? Like, they're not alarmed. Like your dad wasn't upset about this because she's a, a black Latino. And, um, you know, she said, basically, you know, they allow her to date whoever she wants or whatever the case may be. So she came to him recently and said to her, 
said to him uh, that her boyfriend wants to move to Arizona because he wants to buy a bunch of guns and he wants to own guns and he wants to shoot. And um, she's considering transitioning to Arizona so that her and her boyfriend could live out together out there and he can get his guns. And I guess they're going to live happily ever after in, um, in, out there in Arizona. And he said, like, he said his alarm bells just went to the, just, just went off immensely simply because Arizona is one of the most racist states in the country. And then I said to him, white people date black people or have sexual relations with white people to toy with them. Once he's finished using her as his sexual toilet, he's going to leave her and marry a white female and make some babies. And he said, I agree with you. He said that that's what I know to be true about those people. And he said, I just don't believe she would put herself in an even more racist situation because Arizona is one of the most racist states in the country. You're isolated from your relatives who are all on the East coast with this white terrorist. And you're in a sexual relationship with one who wants to own guns i just don't understand that um i just said well it's her life you know i hope that she doesn't get uh you know into anything really serious that ruins her life but i said she's already in a situation that is ruining her life she's just not consciously aware but yet being with this white male and um that's my workplace racism observations of this week and i thank you for taking my call fascinating I would encourage folks to make sure, you know, codify on the job because my suspicion if Donald Trump, if he gets the nomination, which it looks like he will, it'll probably be more uh, of comments being made by white colleagues. Even if they don't make a colleague, them asking a question of you, what do you think about Donald Trump? Are you going to vote for him? That sort of thing. I suspect it's going to be more of that. So I would encourage people already have your response. If you want to say that you don't pay attention to politics or whatever, whatever you think would be best for you to say, but I think that would be good to already have that in mind so that you're not uh, stunned. Uh, Cause it, and even if they do make a racist comment, like what Ross just shared, uh, just already have in mind, I'm not surprised, never be surprised about whites practicing racism. Uh, and you can make a record of it. I've encouraged that as well. Just people keeping a journal or just write it down uh, that this was indeed said uh, with the, latter point the sexual terrorism uh yeah that's <laughs> folks can come up with that. the the arizona situation as well uh keep in mind that that was one of the holdout states uh for not having the martin luther king uh holiday that's something that we've talked about uh quite a bit over the years uh, in terms of that area of the world and just the whites with guns that's two in a row workplace racism where whites are talking about or it's coming up white people wanting to purchase guns even if they're not uh directly being the ones that are talking about it but just white people and guns probably will be an increase of that uh as things continue in my view we are moving away from uh the refinement stage of white supremacy this is uh going back to establishment much more blatant much more intense violent form of white terrorism uh, folks had commentary on what they heard from Roz or questions, feel free. If not, if you have your own situation you want to share, that is welcome as well. Yeah, Roz, do you want to move to Arizona or are you not going to? Uh, have you decided what you're going to do? I know it's your situation, but I just was curious. Oh, I'm not going anywhere. There's no way I could actually pick up and move to Arizona um, with the situation I have with my in-laws is really intense. And, um, and besides, I have no interest in moving anywhere near more white people and being isolated 
in an area surrounded by literally militias and, um, you know, Duck Dynasty nut job white people who are just looking to shoot people. Because I knew someone actually that used to live in Arizona and he, he um, got into activism work out there helping Native Americans and, um, and Mexicans and whatnot. And he talked about being followed by like white people in cars with guns. Um, he said he was shot at one time. So, I mean, like they really, they get busy out there. They really are not a joke. So I have no interest in that. And, um, also just my family situation, all my, all my relatives who are in the States for the most part that I'm close to that are from, um, Trinidad are all based in the New York area on the East coast. Um, my immediate family, as far as my, my sister and my parents are here, my in-laws are here. My son is here. He goes to school. So definitely I won't be going out there at all. Um, I think there's, it's, it's really weird how they, cause they really, they, they, they really do not, they talk about transparency in the job, but there is absolutely no transparency when it comes to the way that the plantation operates. And when our master is making his decisions to get rid of the, the Negroes that he doesn't need anymore. So for me, I've never really stopped looking for work when I got there, even though I would say it was a job that um, I enjoy what I was doing, but ultimately I don't get comfortable like that simply because I like to be aware of what's already out there in case of any sort of contingency plans that have to come up. So that's just the way that I normally function. And with this coming up the way it is, I'm just going to continue to, you know, keep my feelings out there. There's something else that's, uh, that looks better than what this situation is comes up and I'll, you know, I'll make, move on. And um, if I happen to be in that core group that they plan to keep, um, then I'll be there. But like I said, I'll just always keep my eyes open for what's going on. I don't ever get comfortable to the point that I lose an understanding of what the job market holds out there so that if I do have to transition quickly or whatever the case may be, I might already have my resume sitting in somebody's desk waiting to be um, looked at. So that's how I kind of look at the whole situation. I don't, I don't get nervous about it. It's the way of life. Um, and I don't expect, I mean, it's very rare nowadays for anyone to be on any job for like, 30, 40 years. That's just not the case anymore. So I just keep it moving. But um, thanks. Ed. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Oh, man. How's it going, everyone? Uh, it's the caller in Connecticut, and it's workplace racism is hard to reach. Uh, white people do a good job of uh, controlling my time. Um, I'm actually uh, uh, just caught the show. Uh, about 20 minutes ago, been meaning to share, uh, you know, this story for like two weeks now, you know, um, but I just haven't, you know, been able to, been able to catch the show. But uh, anyway, um, so speaking of uh, guns being talked about inside workplace racism, uh, call in Connecticut, I am. So uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of um, the mailman here in Connecticut, who pretty much got a uh, pistol whipped by a white man in uh, the city of uh, Waterbury, Connecticut. Did uh, anyone hear about that? We played it during the uh, clips. Yes, we did. That was not the only uh-huh. black postal worker that was abused in the last few days, but yes, we did play it. Okay. So yeah, this is what's interesting about this. So I got like a little inside scoop. So I have a, uh, you know, I happen to, you know, be in the post office in the state of Connecticut I have a uh, close friend that's in the post office as well um, who actually knows the guy um, and who actually attested to the fact of, uh, you know, him being called, you know, a nigger while he was being pistol whipped on the ground. I know, you know, you're not supposed to get surprised about that, 
But it's just like, golly, man. You know, he, he gets pistol whipped like that. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I try not to get surprised, but uh, that was a little outrageous. Um, and so uh, there's these people called uh, union stewards, right? Uh, so far, what I've heard uh, from union stewards and what they're going to do about this is absolutely nothing. Like uh, a few of the uh, offices actually, uh, you know, made some cards for the, you know, for the man and, uh, you know, plan on uh, sending them off, like, you know, uh, made some cards, uh, got some envelopes, put some, you know, money in them and stuff like that, you know, and going to be sending it off to them. But uh, it's very unfortunate, uh, and I totally agree. Uh, it, it has uh, went back from refinement to establishment uh, because, uh, and, and, it's, and it's just, it's, uh, it's crazy. Like the, his, the dude, this is the white man's first reaction was just violence. You know what I'm saying? Like he, he didn't like, you know, yell out or anything. And, you know, me being a, you know, mailman, I understand like, you know, he's probably working residential and it's like, you know, you, you gotta go, man. Like, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, it's a, a continual thing. I, you know, I doubt it was, but it's like, you know, the mailmen are in situations like that. You know, if you're new on a route, you, you know what I mean? Like, and you don't know the area like that, you know, you, duck behind somewhere and you know take care of your business but you know i just wanted to add that and um yeah i'll uh, mute my line and hello everyone right on with that incident specifically the white person i think it's also significant this wasn't just a random uh white citizen uh that pistol whipped this uh this is a federal employee a postal worker this was a white corrections officer uh, so people just want to keep that. that keep that in mind in terms of what happens uh, when you are in greater confinement. These are the type of white savages uh, that will literally have your life in their hands. And I'm not saying that as a metaphor. I mean, this is the truth. Uh, if he can pistol whip a federal employee out in broad daylight in the middle of a street, imagine what I can do to a convict uh, once I get you behind bars and anything happens uh, somewhat yeah, we bring up the the flick, but I, I think that's uh, equally uh, important. Uh, and if people could just, if you could imagine, if this was turned around, uh, if it was a Muslim in a turban, uh, if it was a black person who had went out and pistol whipped a white postal worker in broad daylight, how this case would be talked about, how this case would be reported, what would be done, uh, regardless if, it, if the black person or if it was a Muslim, if they were a corrections officer, or if they were just a regular uh, citizen, if they had went out and done this, the way that this would be uh, talked about. I, th I suspect that this would be competing with the situation in Belgium, at least in this area of the world, in terms of most talked about uh, news events, uh, if this had happened to a white person. But this is uh, the system of white supremacy and, you know, do not be surprised. Oh, and just for, since this is Connecticut and workplace racism, Omar Thornton felt uh, obligated to mention him as well. Uh, folks have any other comments they wanted to get to that or other things they wanted to share related to workplace racism? May I be heard? Yeah. Uh, we'll get the female caller first. Okay. Um, this is female caller in New York. I just remembered who said uh, at Donald Trump's rally that they called it a show. It was Donald Trump. He was saying, well, you know, when you come to my shows, you can expect to see all kinds of things. I said to myself, well, look, he just called this rally a show. So that was very, very revealing. I don't know if people caught that. But anyway, um, I just wanted to discuss the situation that was going on with me and my workplace 
that I had discussed with Mr. Um, Williams um, back in, I guess it was last spring, with regard to a racist on my job sending me these um, uh, very um, egregious emails and my attempts to address them with her for the second time. This had been going on for two years and management um, involvement. Uh, basically, what happened is that management had a meeting with me uh, acknowledging that affirmative action, um, the AA officer was supposed to uh, sit down and sort of have a mediation, and they uh, uh, informed me that they were not going to be a part of that mediation, even though that was something that the AA officer recommended. They let me, the director and the deputy director, let me know that they were not going to do that. Now, the racist who was sending me these racist white female who was sending me these egregious emails with regard to uh, my having trying to have a working relationship with her also informed me that she was not participating in any mediation uh, procedures. I said, okay, that doesn't stop me from sitting down with the AA officer and having the meeting with her. So I'm waiting and I was waiting. This was back in, Oh, I think this, we can say back in, um, uh, July or August. So I waited from May till August and nothing happened. So I went to my union person and I said, I'm waiting for this meeting with our affirmative action officers. We can sit down and at least document this and, and come and, and have some sort of resolution and have some sort of closure. And we had no AA officer. The AA officer quit. Now, those affirmative action officers usually hold that title along with some other job titles, and they generally get so overwhelmed that they, they can't function. So she went and she transferred to another borough. Okay, so I looked at my paycheck uh, one pay period. I think it was in um, September, and I was short $800. And I said, Where, what is going on here? And I looked at the code next to it, and I was being garnished for student loans. I had been paying my student loans for quite some time. I had an arrangement with them, so I didn't understand why I was being garnished. So I called about it, and they admitted that they made a mistake. Yet again, two more pay periods later, I was garnished again. Now, I work for the state of New York. I just wanted to say that. All right. So um, on top of that, we get something called um, longevity pay. I had confirmed with my um, uh, uh, union person and, um, yeah, with my union person that I was supposed to get my longevity pay in September. Waited for the first period of September, pay period of September. No longevity pay. Uh, second pay period, no longevity pay. So I go to the uh, I go to um, personnel to I'm in a payroll and personnel, and they said, "Oh, you don't get your longevity pay until 2017." <laughs> I said, "Oh, okay." Um, and I I was going to work and I was getting sick. All the stress, everything that had been through. Oh, another thing I asked to be. Um, transferred or to have help. Actually, I asked to have help 
first I asked to get some assistance because I was the only one doing what I was doing for two boroughs in my entire district. Everybody else had one borough. I was doing what I was doing for the Bronx and Manhattan. I got nothing. I asked to go into another unit. unit. I got nothing. I started to come to work, and I began to heat up, literally. I would sit down and begin to get hot, and then I would try to calm down, and the first task that I had to come across, if I couldn't complete it, I would just get physically sick. So I looked at how many, you know, I looked at the nickels that I had saved up after 21 years, uh, a few promotions, but 21 years, and I decided to call it a day, and I went into semi-early retirement. Now, I'd like to tell everyone, when you have these situations and they begin to make you sick, and, um, you know, we, we try to figure out the best ways to deal with these things. I was in a situation, fortunately, where I could leave. Um, the financial stability and all of that, I could, I could leave. Um, but what I did do that I shouldn't have done was I kept it all to myself. I didn't tell my family about what I had done um, because I was afraid of some sort of judgment. And I also had some sense of feeling that I was defeated by the system, that they had won. Even though I came out of the system um, and I hadn't uh, suffered any uh, financially, um, the first thing I did, I, I left very calmly. The first thing I did was call the governor's office. And I called the governor and I let him know what uh, the New York State Higher Education Services Corporation, how they had made that error and had not resolved it. Um, when the uh, Higher Education Services Corporation called me and found out that uh, I had called the governor's office because the governor's office called them, not only did they decide to give me $1,600 back, they gave me an extra 800 I don't know if that was hush money or what, but um, I got $2,400 back. So I was glad about that. Um, like I said, I had saved up enough pennies. I have a, a, another stream of income when I'm able to work out of my home. Um, I'm in the middle of relocating uh, to uh, some place where I would have a, a quieter life um, and be able to um, do what I do out of my home still. But um, I just wanted to uh, say that we're in these situations. It was hard for me to even talk about this for a long time. When we're in these situations, we have to discuss them because not discussing them. And I think that's why I'm thankful for this platform. It took me a long time to even discuss this on this platform. Um, when we don't talk about them, it, it makes us sicker and it um, brings a lot more stress. And it's something that you discussed at the end of your talk with uh, uh, Lauren Crest um, um, Love where you had said something that Dr. Wilson said, discussed with you, Gus, about how she believed that the, a lot of black people, uh, the high unemployment rate was because of the fact that we just gave up. And when I heard that, I said, you know what? There is a whole lot of truth to that. I gave up, and I gave up in a certain uh, point in my career um, where it would not, it's not as detrimental to me as with other people who decide 
this is too much. I got to give up. I'd rather, I'm just going to do what I do on the street. Or they might get into something that maybe not, uh, may not be as advantageous to them and their family. Um, and they just don't, they don't have the opportunity to do the things that they wanted to do because of the system. And another thing I wanted to mention, just very briefly, um, you spoke about um, this um, whitening, this application whitening. I was given something um, when I left called an exit interview questionnaire. And I was very, very suspicious of it. And I just wanted to know if anybody had anything like this in their workplace. I've had any experience with something like this. And do they believe that this is something that whites use to um, label you and hold you back? Because it's a series of questions and it's very general with the type of answers you can give is agree, disagree, or no opinion. All right. And it asks questions like, you know, it starts out with, did you have the opportunity to use your skills? Did you receive adequate training on your job? Overall, and it gets, the, the questions seem to get hotter. If, if, I don't, that's not the set of metaphor, I'm sorry. But the questions seem to get hotter as they go along. It goes, did you have a good overall relationship with your supervisor? Were you treated fairly by your supervisor? Was your supervisor receptive um, to and, and implemented your suggestions? So, I was very suspicious of this tool, and I thought that it was in a tool that is used to label black people as they're exiting or if they're quitting or something like that, and it's very, very revealing so that if maybe a, somebody is going for another job and they, ask, they, they use that prior job for a reference, they have this tool to refer back to. So, yeah, I think that we should be very, very careful and very mindful when we're given things like these, like this, um, when we're leaving jobs, because just as an employment application is used to um, target you, so could an exit tool be used to target you. So I just wanted to share that, and thank you for listening. To that uh, last point, uh, Chantel, she's been on the program many times the guest and just uh call her uh i just but she uh she switched plantations if you will she got <clears throat> a different job uh better benefits and what have you and that's what they did to her when she was transitioning they gave her this uh packet or what have you uh part of her exit interview and all that fill this out as you're leaving and she had the exact same suspicions uh, also because she was uh leaving for a better job that uh, she got a feeling like, oh, they might be trying to uh, besmirch her employment record uh, so that, you know, she doesn't get a great uh, recommendation or they can be like, oh, yeah, she, you know, quit on us and she's not, you know, a long term employer uh, employee. Uh, you don't want to invest in her because she's just going to be a waste of time. And then with the questions that they and I think it was similar types of questions. Uh, did you enjoy your experience here? Did you feel valued as an employee? Those types of things where if you answer honestly, like I was treated as a nigger my whole time here, then it's, oh, yeah, you know, don't hire this person anymore, blah, blah, blah. Don't give them a job. Don't give them a promotion, that sort of thing. So it seems to be consistent. Mm, I thought so. I was very, very suspicious of that tool. Very, I mean, I answered, you know, you know, very, uh, uh, very generally. Yeah. I, Everything went fine. It was beautiful, you know. <laughs> it 
even though I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming out after over 20 years, it's not something that, you know, I, that, that, you know, I'm anticipating, so, you know, getting something else where somebody would have to refer back to that. But I just wanted to, um, let the um, listening audience know to be very, very suspicious of that too. Cause I, I think it, it's along the same lines as an, um, an employment application with them targeting us. I'm familiar with that tool as well. And, um, I was, I once worked at Deloitte, which is a huge accounting firm, a financial institution. And they used the tool because they wanted to be amongst the 10 top companies for employees in the country every year. That was their standard. So this was a tool that they used to, this is what they said when I left the company, they used so that they could make that list. So, you know, um, they, they sub, to submit this to whatever organization picks the 10 best companies and they're able to use from the exit interviews, that's how they pick um, what companies make that list. And I also was told at another company, I've uh, this happened to me twice, so it must be standard practice when you're leaving a company on your own will, you know, not getting, like, a fired or anything, but if you're leaving the company for another job, uh, part of the exit interview is doing this um, survey. And um, what I've heard from a person that worked in human resources who I was cool with when they gave it to me at this job, they said if you don't give them good reviews, if you ever want a job there again, they won't hire you back. That's what they use it for at that place. Yep, that makes sense. I mean, with the choices, I'm sorry, with the choices you get, agree, disagree, or no opinion. And then they give the little box, just in case you have anything else you want to say. You know, and my comments were, thank you. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to say I agree with everything all of you said, but I also think, too, that um, when they collect them, if they they get enough of them from enough people of a specific quote-unquote race, I think it also gives them insight into how the refinement of racism, white supremacy is working on the psyche of the black people who leave. So um, I definitely agree with everything all of you said as far as them using it as a tool to um, either ruin your future prospects or not hire you if you attempt to come back to the company. But I also think it's, it's used as a psychological analytical tool to see how they're affecting the mental state of the black people who are leaving voluntarily. So in other words, what's pushing them out the door and they figure out what they need to do more of and when they want to go in that direction and um, what they need to, to maybe refine or better refine moving forward as well. I just wanted to chime in with that. I agree. Um, before Matt, it was somebody else that <clears throat> spoke up as well. I also thought it was really important. Uh, the piece about you said you uh, felt like they had beaten you. I uh, might be paraphrasing, but I thought that was really important uh, just in terms of the, the I, in talking about black mental health, uh, that we should really make sure that we pay attention to how all of this uh, impacts us. Uh, and even when you were talking about uh, how it impacted you uh, physiologically when you were on the job and, and the stress that you felt when you got there, if you had difficulty completing a task because of, of going through all of this, uh, I think, number one, when people had asked before why uh ta Coates and others uh, have emphasized how this impacts black bodies, the physical toll that racism takes on us. I think that's an illustration of why uh, that this is not just 
uh, people talking and, you know, I felt a little bit bad, like, no, this is impacting me uh, on a not just a spiritual level and not just an emotional level. Like this is having a physical impact on my being uh, what whites are doing to us. Um, but I think that is is hugely important in terms of not talking about it and or feeling somehow that you've been uh, defeated or because I had a different listener. I uh, was talking about workplace racism. Same thing uh, in, in feeling either ashamed or embarrassed or I mean, it's just not pleasant talking about how whites have terrorized you on the job and, and that this is your livelihood. You depend on this to be able to take care of yourself and your family is, is just not the most exciting thing to talk about. Uh, but it is hugely important because I think a lot of black people end up feeling that <clears throat> uh, I'm a coward or I am not living up to the person that I would like to see myself being in terms of what happened, what's happening to me on the job and not being able to respond in the way I would like to or not being able to to get justice for myself in this workplace situation. It is hugely important to have an outlet, even if it's not this program, even if it's just a journal, even if it's just one person, if you have a partner or a friend or a family member, it's hugely important because not having that outlet. That's how you end up with situations like what happened with Leonita McClain. That's how you end up. That can be the final result of having that daily stress. And I mean, that is such a monumental piece of stress for black people worldwide having that stress and for black people who are not in the situation uh, like our female caller in New York where you could just say hey I have saved up my money uh, I, this is not going to put me in a situation where I can't put food on the table I can walk away and you know I'm, I'm still going to be okay for a lot of black people they do not have that convenience so it just it amplifies the stress of that situation uh, just emphatically in I don't know how to deal with this. I'm struggling with how to deal with this. I feel bad because I'm not able to deal with this in a more productive manner. And this might hugely impact me being able to take care of myself or my family or what have you. It, I mean, it just it causes so much strain uh, for black people that ends up impacting so many different areas of our lives, uh, which is why I say this is something that we should be talking about on a constant basis because I'm convinced every single black person is dealing with this to some degree. I wouldn't care if it's uh, first lady, Michelle Obama, president Obama, whomever the black person is, no matter how many nickels they got in the bank, they are dealing with this at some level. It is inescapable in the system of white supremacy, but just, I, I think that's hugely important. And I'm glad you shared that aspect as well. I just wanted to add, um, I, I'm very thankful for my mother she asked, you know, I held this from her for so long because I, you know, she worked very, very, my mother worked very hard all her life. And all I ever heard all my life was, I'm just going to work and retire and go down south. And all I, that's all I ever heard. So, you know, I, 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 I thought she was going to hold me to this standard, you know, and it was very difficult. But I finally told her and she supported, she understood and she, you know, she told me if any, anything I needed, um, let her know. And if I wanted to come back on um, South Carolina, that was fine. She, I mean, she was so, and, um, I took her up on that. So that's, that's where I'm, I'm transitioning. I'm, I'm working some things out and I, I'm going to relocate. Um, so uh, also talk to your elders, your elders have lived, they have had experiences and they're probably too traumatized to talk about. But I think that if as you know the younger generations if we let them know that we understand that we're going through something through something too we'd be very very surprised 
at um, the wealth of knowledge that they can give us. And I, and I think Dr. Welsing's life is a wonderful example of that, to hear all of those things that um, her and her sisters have gone through in their lives. So I've talked to your elders. That helps as well. That's all I had. I'll mute my line. Hey, and uh, also uh, to, for the lady call who just spoke, uh, did any of your stress contribute to the, the job you did as well? Because I, I could, you said you had to service two barrels. I'm in Harlem, and you said you had to service uh, Manhattan and a block. And uh, whatever, you know, services you were providing, I could imagine the amount of, um, you know, hard times that you see amongst the black people, mostly that live in the upper Manhattan and Bronx area, you know, that, that they face, and um, Latinos as well. Did that comply to your stress as well on the job? It did a lot, primarily because the funding changed. There is no money to provide these services, and they want us to jump through hoops and find a way to get this stuff done. I mean, the, the systematic changes that they made, there was no way in the world that um, I could really continue to do that. Uh, and like I said, uh, the Bronx, the service that I was providing, the Bronx is so heavily populated. It's ridiculous the amount of uh, uh, people that we had to serve in the Bronx. Very, very populated. Manhattan, a lot as well. But I was doing two boroughs, and no other person in the state of New York was doing in any district were doing two uh, two separate. Well, they would call them counties upstate. No one was doing two counties. So, yeah, that contributed a lot, um, the, you know, the, the racist emails, the, uh, the fact that my money was, was being, go, you know, disappearing out of my check for no reason. Yeah, it, it contributed a lot. But like I said, there was no funding. The, 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 they took the money away. So, uh, the, you know, that, that was the beginning of it. Whites do that sort of retaliatory thing as well. I thought that it was so many different aspects, but that sort of thing is to be expected. That standard operating procedure, any, any negress, any Negro that has gotten, uh, Hey, you're going to speak up. You're going to be uppity and try and call us out on the job. They do that sort of retaliation, uh, where they will work together and mess you over on your check or mess you over on your hours, change your schedule around, make it difficult uh, for you. If you, you know, are responsible for picking up your child, uh, so you need to be off at a certain time. They'll mess your schedule around to make that difficult. You can just expect all of that sort of thing. And I view those all as acts of racism, uh, white supremacy. And as you were talking about the person that was supposed to be doing the mediating, uh, and then they end up not even, uh, be, they don't even have a person in that post anymore. Uh, I've seen, and I think people have talked about that before. I think that's another deliberate act of racism where they know people that are supposed to be dealing with instances of racism on the job. They know these people are not supposed to get anything done. This is supposed to be a very impotent position. So we will deliberately make sure that they get overwhelmed and taxed and what have you so that you just have constant turnover uh, in these positions where people know that they're not able to effectively perform the job and then they just end up quitting and leaving. I've seen that pattern play out repeatedly as well. There's no question in my, I'm sorry. There's no question in my mind that that was retaliatory. There was no question at all. That's why I called the governor's office. Okay. That, you know, there's a governor has this one telephone number that's connected to all of his agencies. Being that I was on the inside, 
I understood that, and I knew the power of calling that governor's office because those agencies don't want to get a call, a phone call for that governor's office, and which is why I think that they gave me an extra eight hundred dollars. But I'll just, you know, that that's just speculation. Um, Gus, I wanted to speak to something that the um, the female just talked about in regards to speaking about what's happening to you and just um, getting it out. Um, first, I had a, one of my closest friends actually committed suicide due to being terrorized on the job by white people. Um, and also my wife had been terrorized so much that um, it followed her. So she would go from job to job and have these experiences where um, one time they tried to frame her for stealing someone's pocketbook. Um, they would put, she, she was, she was doing the, in one position she was, uh, she was editing a yearly book that would come out that would speak about, I guess, the financial status of the company. And they would put uh, subtle messages to her um, in, in there. And the messages would say something like, um, the fiscal year uh, 2016, we made XYZ amount of money. You will not get paid on Friday. Then it would go back to just speaking about the financial stuff. And it would be like these little subliminal messages that they would put in writing to her and um, they would make comments in the office when, whenever she would come around. And she had gotten tortured psychologically so much that when you speak about that suicidal intent, they pushed her to the edge. And we had to sit down one day because she would just give me these stories on a regular basis. And she would leave one job. And I, and I would tell her to quit. So she would quit the job, go for, to a temp agency. The temp agency would send her to the job. And then that job that she got through the agency it would be a whole new set of crap that she would go through. And after a number of years of this, um, we, she, we sat down one day and I said, you know what? I don't want you working anymore. I said, hey, whatever I have to do to make sure that we're good, I will do it. And I said, you can do something else where um, you don't have to go on anybody else's plantation. And she actually started getting into art. She's been exhibited um, in a number of museums and a number of different exhibits and things like that. But ultimately, beyond that, both of her parents ended up getting sick. So now she basically takes care of them, and she also does her art and I basically go out on the plantation, but that was, that came from a discussion, regular discussion about what she was experiencing on the job and me seeing the psychological effect it was having on her and me making a decision to sit with her and say, you know what, this is the way we're going to move forward as a family. Um, my son was older at the time and, um, he had gotten a full scholarship to the school that he was going to as far as the, um, the high school at that time. So um, as far as that, there was a, a, a situation that worked out financially where we could have done something like that. And um, it just comes from having that honest discussion with your partner or, like she said, if it's your mom, elders, all of these things can really help to alleviate the, the, um, the pressure that's put on you that can push you over the edge to hurt yourself or potentially go off and, you know, uh, go off on the killing spree or whatever the case may be. Um, so thank you very much. I just wanted to chime in with that. Thank you so, so much. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Just, just a couple of things, um, like workplace. And I just want to piggyback on, like the young lady said, and like you mentioned too, about retaliatory things. I also think too, then like the gentleman just said about how they were set, you know, how they could set you up. And just a quick story, I can remember, this was years ago, so this story is it's a workplace situation, it was like over 30 years ago. Well, you know, about that long. And um, actually, you know, I was much younger, you know, right out of college, had a lot of mouths and everything were happening because I ended up getting fired from the job. And then when I look back on it, um, me running my mouth, 
you know, help contribute that. But I remember one incident that took place was right then I was, you know, I was, there were things going on at the job and, you know, um, people coming at me. So I remember we used to get paid. And it's just every time I would go like get my paycheck from the lady who gives our paycheck, and I was she would give my paycheck, and you had to sign for it. And I would say, "Are you sure you don't have another paycheck in there for me?" And we laugh about it it's like a little joke, you know, a little game. So one day I came, you know, and I signed for my paycheck and everything, and I said, "You sure you don't have another paycheck for me?" And she says, "You know, Kim, I do have another paycheck for you." So I looked at the paycheck. I mean, I, I looked at the other, and I took it and I signed for it. So I was like, uh-uh, something wrong with here. I said, because I should not be having a second paycheck. Now, keep in mind, there was a lot of turmoil going on with me and my job, me and my supervisors and stuff. And I'm just, I should not have a second paycheck. Why am I getting two paychecks, you know, on my payday? So <laughs> I remember eventually I walked around with a paycheck, and then I, I remember I went down to HR. And I was talking to the lady in HR about it. So, you know, they act like, oh, gosh, you know, we just don't understand. We don't understand, you know. So she said, well, you know, um, well, let us have it. We'll investigate, you know, what was going on here. We'll let you know. So I'll just say to you all, I'm still waiting, you know, for them to let me know. And it's been 30-something years. And my whole point, I thought, and I was telling the best friend of mine, you know, I said, I said, you know, I said, if I had cash that check, I said, they would have came down on me. It would have been like the whole world was coming down on my back. You know, I should probably even prosecuted that you stole this money. You know this check wasn't yours, and, you know, you stole this money. I just thought that's what they would have did. And I say that to say because some of the black people, we could be so gullible, you know, um, unfortunately. This, you know, I'm trying to be anti-black. But I just think, like you say, things that we have to open up our eyes to because, you know, somebody comes. Like I said, it was a joke. Oh, you got a second check for me. Well, this day she did have one, and I knew. I you know there was no second check, but I do know it's sad to say there will be some black people like, Oh yeah, yeah, thank you, then they cast the check and now they're in trouble, you know. So I, I definitely understand um, you know, that situation, you know, with, with like you say, that, that retaliatory that weight and, and that pressure and you know, it's almost like you, you work in your department and it's almost like the whole department is, is on your back. And, and I, the other thing, too, I want to say is, like she said, she wouldn't talk to, you know, I think she said eventually her family because she felt she would have been judged. And unfortunately, you know, when it comes to us, excuse me, um, you know, we, you know, our families do judge us because, you know, it's almost kind of like we should be happy. We got these jobs, you know, um, sad to say, um, what I call like front door jobs as opposed to when, you know, our parents or our grandparents or great grandparents had the back door jobs and then, you know, you come basically find that you almost probably still doing the same or if you we got the front door jobs, we still making the money that they were making the back door jobs which which isn't enough. But it's like that we have to we have to start talking to each other. The gentleman just before me said basically he sat down and talked to his wife and they had to come to you know, like he said, I, I would do what's necessary. You just stop working because, you know, he, you know, recognized that what's happening with my wife in her, in her workplace or workspace is affecting our marriage at home. And then, like the young lady said, you know, we've been almost ashamed to talk to people at home because, unfortunately, though, sometimes, I mean, I've had situations with my family who, you know, I'm trying to explain to them what's going on. They just let me like, I'm raising. You know, if you got a degree, you should be able to say it's not that simple. So I you know, just say that we need to, like you say, be able to talk to each other. And then, like you say, with Lenita McClain, not having nobody to talk to. And just as I listened to that, to to her story, you know, 
some of the things that, that she was saying, you, I would sit there, because I, I, I listened to it in the archive, because, you know, I'm at work, and I was sitting up there, and I'm like, it's almost sad, some of the things that she would, would be, you know, was saying, was saying, and, um, and it's just painful, like you say, not having nobody to talk to or not talking to anybody. And then in her case, she's suffering from depression, you know. And unfortunately, if we don't, you know, um, then eventually these things like depression and like the gentleman said, a friend, suicidal thoughts and suicide, things that can come up. And I just wanted to um, say that and I'll read my line. Thank you. For sure. The person that dialed in from a block number, do you have a comment? If it's your own situation, that's fine, too. But if you had an observation or comment you wanted to get in before we uh, get ready to close out, a uh, person that dialed in from a block number? Uh, no, no, I, I'm good. I, I appreciate all the call, call sharing that they're sharing. It's really helpful. Appreciate it. Right on. Uh, we did our overtime and, and everything. Uh, we will close things out there i I can uh only since since the payroll aspect payroll aspect of it uh seemed to be significant as well uh that it's it's just so many layers i know we had uh lauren Kreslove on the program earlier this week uh just talking about how uh it 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 might be one acute episode that lead can lead to a black person becoming self-destructive or uh just completely removing themselves uh from the job market or however they deal with things uh, but there are so many other incidents that have led to that decision. Uh, and I know uh, personally, uh, I remember working and I think I had mentioned it before. I would go to uh, to the bank after I got uh, my nickels to go cash my check. And it would be this long process. You know, we need a DNA sample and a urine test and fingerprints and five forms of identification. And I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I mean, it was pretty close to that sort of thing. And I remember I went in, uh, I was at job and I was in uh, the office that dealt with finances and was a white person. And he said with a laugh, he said, uh, the bank, they call here to verify that you're one of our employees whenever you get paid. And he was uh, just thought this was so funny. And he said, uh, they don't do that for anybody else. Uh, We have all these other people that work here. They don't do that for anybody else. It's just you. And he just cracked up laughing like this was so funny. And he said, you know what that is, of course. And I said, uh, what is that? He said, it's because you're a black person. <laughs> he just laughed and laughed and laughed and, and kept on rolling. Uh, but those types of things uh, where black people, you're constantly running into white supremacy and so all areas of people activity, but especially on the job, uh, it that stress, it becomes cumulative and it impacts health in so many different ways uh just not something that uh, we should minimize we should really be serious about that and i say that's why this segment of the program uh is extremely uh important that people should uh if you journal we have people that do that as well journal uh if you have a family member or a friend or whomever that you can make time to share some of these issues with it is extremely uh important uh and you can develop strategies when you start to understand this and it takes some of the blame off you i've, I've found also that a lot of people they end up internalizing that frequently ends up being the result where the black person uh, concludes that it's something defective about them. Uh, It's something 
uh, that they shouldn't have done where they just blame themselves and that just drives for the whole depression and becoming self-destructive about things as opposed to really focusing and being clear that the people that are most to blame are white. Uh, doesn't mean that you don't look for strategies to try to neutralize this, to make things better for yourself, but just recognizing that you are being mistreated, that this is designed. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I think it's important to share this as well, that you can hear how common this is and how you have so many similarities in terms of black people all over the world who are experiencing the exact same types of problems on the job from whites. This is deliberate. It's not accidental. Uh, with that, uh, we'll wrap things up and we should be back uh, the early part of next week. If you have questions, confusion, gripes, uh, suggestions, feel free. Drop an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again for everyone tuning in and sharing. I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of war. Uh, you do not want to be behind the wheel, passenger, pedestrian, uh, and have Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw be the one that is pulling you over uh, and can totally ruin your life, if not take your life. Uh, let's make sure that we're making the best possible decisions uh, to keep ourselves as safe as possible and anybody that we might be responsible for. Uh, with that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Kyle signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.